Where are you the fourth one? Hi everybody, welcome to Ornate Stairwells. <laughs> I'm Autumn, I'm joined as always by Nia. Hi, I'm Eve. And we have a guest with us to tell us all about Marvel movies. That's right, Lem the Cat. <laughs> <laughs> we have oh two God. <laughs> 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 um, Yeah, okay. No, you're not jumping up there. You're not jumping up there. Okay. I believe your words... When, when asked if you were ready, you said, I'm always ready for chaos, so... Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't wrong. Um, so we're joined by Emily. <laughs> I don't know if you want to introduce yourself. No, I really don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> You've watched all the Marvel movies, and we asked you for a top three. No, 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 three. no, that's not accurate. Yes. That's not yeah, accurate, that's not accurate. there's a new Thor movie, and I can't watch it because I refuse to go to the theaters. So you Especially watched... for the Thor movie. <laughs> I would pay money to see it. No, if it but was like, on streaming, I would buy it. I know, but like, it I'm list. saying to risk COVID. No, I will not. I for a Thor that. movie. Yeah. I will not do that. I will do a lot of things, but that is not one of them. Now, a Jackie Chan movie, maybe. <laughs> no, even that. Yeah. Still, it would be more of a debate. <laughs> anyway, so you have watched every Marvel movie except for. The new Thor and every Marvel show, and you've given us your top three and your bottom three. Do you want to run us through that? I'm gonna do the, the top or the yeah. bottom first. But that can't make me bleed. Um, I don't know which would you prefer, bad or good. Start with the get or start with the good. Yeah, the good. Okay. <laughs> so, in the number three place, I would say it's a tie between Black Panther and Shang Chi. I liked both of those. Yeah. yeah. They're both equally good, I feel like. Number two is Moon Knight, because I have the hots for Oscar Isaac. <laughs> I was going to ask, what percentage of this is that Oscar Isaac is hot? I mean, it tilts the scales, sure. <laughs> and then uh, in my number one, the best of all of the Marvel that I watched is the most recent aside from Thor. Thor doesn't count. Um, mm-hmm. Ms. Marvel. The yeah. Disney Plus series. Which is the like teen drama one. Yeah, it's like teen drama meets Marvel. It's just shifts kiss. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. And of course all of these in my top list are because there's diversity and obviously mm. the other actors who are not white make things a lot better. <laughs> and more palatable. <laughs> now, bottom three. Okay, so bottom three, I would say in third place would be all of the Spider-Man movies because I really don't like them. Except there's one that gets slightly higher. So the one that sl- gets like some kudos was Spider-Man: Homecoming, and only because it had the, in my opinion, the best end credits scene of all of the Marvel movies. Yeah. It made me laugh. That's the that's the Captain America one, right? Yeah. Oh, right. Okay, yeah. That's that like the, good. like, PSA, whatever. Yeah. 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 It's good. Uh, number two would be Eternals. I don't know why that movie was so freaking long. <laughs> I don't know why that movie exists. <laughs> like, if you asked me to recount the plot of Eternals right now, I don't think I'd be able to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> it was that bad. It seems like it's... From what I've heard from people, it's mostly just people debating whether or not to do plot. 
That was basically. <laughs> yeah, that I wasn't really paying attention, but that was basically it. And then the movie stops at a certain point. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then number one, absolute worst, absolute trash was the Incredible Hulk movie, which I did not even finish. Yeah, that movie That's how sucked. Bad it was. That movie sucked. Yeah. <laughs> We, we've talked about how bad that one was. Because we were all around for that one. Yeah, we watched this one together. <laughs> we watched half of this one together. <laughs> yeah. HBO Max exclusive, The Incredible yeah. Hulk. <laughs> so how do you feel about the MCU overall now? Having, like, watched all of it in rapid succession. Um, it's really not that great. <laughs> 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 yeah. you know what you should do sometime is mm-hmm. just tally up all of the run times of everything to know how much <laughs> oh my god i'm sure someone's done that this. i'm sure someone's done that yeah you should do that be like emily did you know <laughs> you wasted 60 hours of your life or whatever and no, it's probably more than that. I just like... remembered when we watched The Accidental Spy. I told this already on the podcast, but I was, like, trying to be nice. I was like, how does that compare to, like, some of the MCU stuff you're watching? And you just said, it's so much better. <laughs> and I was like, all right. Well, let's watch some more Jackie Chan movies. 99 hours. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's 99 hours of my life. As of... I would like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's current. That does not include the fourth Thor movie. So, yeah. 99 so, hours. Subtract some of those Disney Plus series that I actually enjoyed. It. And then I would like the rest of my time back. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can re- submit reimbursement <laughs> to my bank account. Yeah. You have the information on Disney Plus. Just, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Pop it over there. Thank you. Um, well, thank you for your time. And yeah. Your, your uh, services are Marvel correspondent. Yeah, you're cutting into <laughs> my Master Chef Australia time now. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. Goodbye. <laughs> anyway. Hi, everybody. So I watched one movie. Yeah. You watched how many movies? Uh, so I, I left the spaces for me to, to plop yeah. them on in here, because I wanted to just reveal them one by one to you. I there's one movie I know that you watched. Everything else here is going to be a surprise to me. I have not looked at your letterbox specifically yeah. in days. Because at one point, you were like, oh, you're going to be so surprised. And I thought about looking at it. I haven't looked at your letterbox. I barely even opened it. Um, I will just, I'll, I'll quick run through everything that I've done since our last episode. Yeah, you've also watched a ton. Well, I don't mean every movie I've watched. I'll just oh, okay. update listeners. Because okay. I haven't done a just like, oh, I'm hanging out podcast in a little while. Every podcast I've done this last week has been like, we're doing we're doing a thing. Yeah. This is just me hanging out a little bit. I'm, so I'm putting in the one that you know. Just already in there for me. So. Yeah. So one... I watched um, the fairy tale movie. Um, it was, uh, on the one hand, it was fucking awful. <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, oh. I do understand why that franchise was popular now, which yeah. is all I wanted out of that movie. Like, I'm not. I thought it was awful, and I'm not going to watch any more fairy tale. But what I wanted to know from that movie is why do people like this? And yeah. I learned that. So 
Um, if you want to learn more about that. It's a it's a totally competent shonen, is what it seemed like? No, it is not, not even... competent. Okay. I would describe My Hero Academia as a totally competent shonen, and I would describe Fairy Tale as below competence. You have to be at least as good as Sword Art Online, and I gotta say I found Sword Art Online more engaging. I didn't know that she'd watched any Sword Art Online. I have never elected to watch Sword Art. What has <laughs> happened is that my wife has watched a great deal of Sword Art while I was in the room, and there has been enough moments of Sword Art being just fine that I have, like, tuned in for. Yeah. Whereas if Nora, if Nora was watching Fairy Tale and I was in the room, I would occasionally heckle her about how bad this is. But Nora's not going to do that because Nora hated the movie even more than me. So. Yeah. That's what, what, have you looked into like fan opinions of this movie? What if fans are like, this is the bad one, this show's usually way better than this? I don't know. The thing in general is that um, this is not a remembered movie, but I don't yeah. know if that's like... no. Also, no one remembers the fourth Naruto movie, so I can't tell if that's a like... No one remembers this because anime movies in general are not remarkable, or if this is like uniquely bad. I have not looked into that at all. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so that's that's the movie I watched. Um, I don't remember if it had stairs, but I'm just gonna give it an F because it sucked. Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna do an F question mark. Yeah. Sure. No uh, one's ever going to rewatch that movie to like confirm yeah. the F. <laughs> anyway, if you have watched Fairy Tale the movie Phoenix Princess, Priestess, Priestess. Please. Um, and you know the stairs. Please write in. Send oh, us a correction. Send up a, a picture of the stairs as well. I feel like I glossed over this point. I feel like maybe I started to say it and didn't finish it. Um, we did that for Pop Town Funk. If people mm. are not familiar with Pop Town Funk, pardon me, a little acid reflux there. Um, Nora, my wife, um, and I watch. Nora is my wife. That was Nora, comma, my wife, comma. Yeah. And I roll random Funko Pops, and we have to watch whatever, like, movie or show or whatever comes up because of that. That is available for the $5 patrons over on the Export Audio Patreon, which you can get to by going to exportaud.io. And I'm just going to shout that out here also, because one of the things that I did with my week is I spent a lot of time cleaning up a lot of back-end stuff. Yeah. For export, I made all the links like exportaudio slash ornate stairwells. I made stuff like that work a little better. I like updated the Patreon so it doesn't have anyone's dead names on it. Yeah. It also has like working links and uh, and everything is there. Um, you know, one dollar gets you this podcast, Gotham City Limits, Bag End Book Club, bunch of other stuff that it's not coming to my mind. Hot singles. Yeah. $1 gets you all those podcasts early. $5 gets you Pop Town Funk. Pop Town Funk is a great podcast. It is a stupid podcast. It is a burden on my life. Yeah. Uh, I love it so much. On this podcast, we mostly watch good movies. On that podcast, you mostly watch bad movies, but you are watching uh, Sleeping yes. Beauty next. Yes, we are watching Sleeping Beauty. I just wanted to... I'll tell you about this real quick. Yeah. I told, I told the story to Nora off mic, and I don't imagine I'm going to tell it to her again on mic. So, Sleeping Beauty... One of Nora's absolute favorite movies, like genuinely right behind Star Wars as her like second favorite movie. Like she probably likes that more than any other Star Wars movie besides the first one. She loves Sleeping Beauty. I, in my head, when we got Sleeping Beauty was like, oh, I think I'm probably going to like that movie fine, but it's going to be a little bit of a bummer for Nora to be so excited and for me to just kind of be like, eh, on it. Cause I don't 
That's just not a thing I enjoy a lot. Um, I sort of impulsively went and watched one musical number from Sleeping Beauty, and I was just totally blown away. Yeah. I was just like, holy shit, this movie's gonna be good. <laughs> yeah. Um, honest, like, in terms of, like, the quality of the actual movie, I don't know if, if Snow White is actually better than Sleeping Beauty. It's been a while since I've watched both of them. Snow White in my head is always just like, man, if I want some classic ass fucking Disney, I'm going to go to Snow White. Cause that's like, I don't think they invented rotoscoping, but like it pioneered rotoscoping as an animation technique. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like it is just stunning as like, they did a feature length an- hand drawn animation. Film. I would, I would love, I don't have this in me. I'm not this person, but I would really enjoy a podcast, maybe from someone who, like, was a Disney adult, but is not currently, like, in it in that way. I would enjoy a podcast of, like, like, M would be great for this. I don't think they would want to do it, but, like, going through the Disney animated canon, like, all the 2D animated feature films. Yeah. I would love... Um, cause I'm not going to make time to watch all those, but I would love to sort of get a survey of, oh, here's what all these are. Here are the ones worth watching, you know, whether that's because they're particularly exceptional or because like, oh, you got to see this one it's so bad, you know? Yeah. I would love for someone to do that show. And if anybody in our audience, cause I'm sure a million shows like that exist. If anybody in our audience has something that you think has the right vibes of like, cynical about disney but not just like we're here to point and laugh you know yeah honestly for me a lot of that disney stuff i because i just watched it as a kid and then i yeah grew up and then was like cynical about the company itself Uh uh-huh but when i went to especially undergrad we didn't do this as much in the the grad program um but so one of the people who i did uh took undergrad classes with like primarily did animation and we watched a number of old disney stuff Specifically because we were learning about the history of film, and since he was such an animation guy, like, that's what his focus was. Yeah. He was always talking about, like, here's how animation developed through time as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, it, like, that gave me an additional appreciation of, like, oh, I love Robin Hood because, like, it was one fox. of my favorite films as a kid, and there's a fox in it, and I still associate with foxes. Mm. Like, you know. But... That film's not doing anything spectacular in the way that, like, Snow White was just, like, yeah, changing yeah, what animated films could be. Mm-hmm. And the, he was also the, the professor who was, like, when Akira came out, it, like, everybody in Western animation was fucking shook. Yeah. Because we were, like, oh, they're fucking doing that over there. Yeah. Uh, and we're still doing, like, this damn rotis, like, this, like, low-level rotoscope shit. And they're, like, using computers to animate the trajectory of, like debris and explosions and shit and so apparently the production of um oh what's the one that was like right after oh beauty and the beast got slowed down because they they brought in a bunch of extra like like there's a whole musical sequence that's like basically like one take if you shot it Mm -hmm. on like film uh and the camera's just like moving all around and everything Mm -hmm. and you're like moving through her like going through the you know books and everything um and that was, like, they they did computers to figure out how to do that. Yeah. They saw Akira, basically, and were like, well, fuck, we need to get computers in and, like, animate differently than do you know, how we were planning to do this shit. So. I assume you do. You know about the, like, half-finished version of 
Beauty and the Beast that they showed at Con one year? No, I don't think so. This is like a... I read an article about this once because I think Disney was putting this out on a Blu-ray, maybe. I could be mistaken about that. But basically, like, the, like sometime before the movie was finished, Disney took um, Beauty and the Beast to Con. And there's, like, some parts that is, like, finished animation. And there are some parts that are just animatics. And there are some parts that are even just, like, concept art with voice actors. And it's, like, this total, like... It it is like, it was like uh, this. The article was describing like the experience of watching it as like you got to see into the process because because Disney just like puts these things out with like you know we spent a zillion million dollars on it you know we have all the animators in in California working on this movie yeah and so like Disney puts out these products that were that are so polished that it was really inter like. People were, like, apparently, like, moved to tears by this, like, sort of, we are still making Beauty and the Beast. Here is the process of making Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. Um, like, people were just, like, really blown away by that. And I I think I saw that that got released by Disney at some point. I don't know if that's true or maybe if the article was, like, Disney should release this. Anyway, I read this yeah. article. I thought it was interesting. Anyway. Mm. Um, other stuff I've been up to this week. I finished oh, Berserk. I wanted to make one note also on the, the back end stuff for the network is yeah. we also set up a bunch of links to like you can just find them on Podcatcher apps. Yes. Which if you are already listening to this, you probably already know how to get the RSS feeds. Yes. Um mm-hmm. But there's a lot of the shows were not available on things like Apple Podcasts. None of our shows are available on Spotify, never will be. Um, none of our shows are available on Pandora because I needed to read their terms of use. And I felt like the Pandora stuff is weird. Yeah. The Pandora stuff was like, I felt like I needed to, I needed to carefully read through those terms of use to make sure I wasn't selling my soul. And so I didn't want to do that. Um, I think there's like weird requirements of anytime you say you can like find us on these, you have to include Pandora or something. Yeah. So I'm not, but you can never say like we're on Apple podcast without saying Pandora if you're on Pandora. Oh right! I remember Art yeah. talking about this on this is the thing that <laughs> Friends like, of the Table. Friends of the Table, yeah. Anyway, I don't know if that got fixed, but we're not on Spotify, but we are on every other like Stitcher. Yeah, uh, you know, Listen Notes was a thing I didn't know existed. Um, Apple Podcasts. We're on most of the stuff, and you can go to like. Generally, I made things pretty easy. So if you can't remember the name Gotham City Limits, you can just type in exportodd.io slash Batman and get there. Yeah. Um, so if you have friends that you think would enjoy the shows, it is easier than ever to get them into it. And I would appreciate you, um, recommending the shows to your yeah. friends, giving and, us uh, five star reviews on Apple podcasts, apparently brings us up in their algorithm. This is a thing I have heard many times. Um, I'm yeah. not going to read your reviews on the show cause I don't own any Apple products. Uh, and so I don't really have a way of reading those reviews, Yeah. nor do I care enough. <laughs> so like because you don't have apple products you are having trouble setting up the apple yeah. end but i think export and ours were already on but they changed yeah. how they handle it now and so it's like harder so i ended up setting up the the rest of the podcast okay but this is a note when i set that up i saw you can do a channel so if, if people go on apple podcast you can follow a channel that's basically all of the export podcasts except i think ours and 
Export you, because you have you to call it Arcanum. You cannot, Ars Arcanum. You cannot call it Ars. I just, <laughs> like, sometimes when I'm typing, I will just do that, and now that's just in my head. <laughs> um, but yeah, so those two won't show up. You'll have to add those separately. But there yeah. is, like, a... You can just follow all the podcasts by, like, going to the network yeah. page, whatever. So if you find one and click on, it should be, like, a thing that you can easily click on. Um... um and I will see the reviews because I do have access to them. Um, and so if you like my work, please go rate and review Ghost Ivy. Ghost yes. Ivy is really well. Yeah, please. Because uh, I got someone who gave us a one-star review and said that I need speech therapy because I say like too much. And I did have speech therapy as a child because my voice was too faggoty. And so fuck you. <laughs> I kind of wish my voice was as faggoty as it was when I was a kid. <laughs> anyway <laughs> so um yeah i just have like a big chip on my shoulder about this review specifically because of the speech therapy on it and yeah. i just want people to like bury it by giving us good reviews so <laughs> anyway <laughs> that's my request to you um other stuff i've been up to i've been very busy at work which is a big part of why i haven't watched movies um other reasons i've watched movies i haven't watched movies i finished berserk the manga yeah. Um I am also reading this but not at the pace that you've read it to finish it. Yeah. I I I just like hit a point where I had not been reading Berserk in a couple months and I was just like I just need to get this off my plate and so I just read like 20 volumes in like 3 days. Yeah. And then I've also been watching a lot of Star Trek which is like I'm having a great time and it fits in the same part of my brain as watching movies, you know? In my head I'm like oh I'm watching movies right now. But it's, I'm not going to talk about watching Star Trek on the podcast. Yeah. I guess if people are curious, I'm nearly done with season two of TNG. I have also mixed in about three episodes of TOS now. Um, I see the potential of TOS. Um, I see why people like it, but it's not hitting for me. Yeah. And I don't know if I want to go around asking for a skip list on TOS again. I was trying to Google, but you would mostly just get like, here are the 10 best episodes. Yeah. And I would, I would appreciate like, I don't know. I don't it, know if I want to ask for a TOS skip list. So this is such a tangential episode that we have going on right now. But so I got my hair dyed today. Yeah. Uh, and when you get your hair dyed, you're just sitting in a chair while they put bleach in your hair for a really long time. And then you'd like just sit around mm -hmm. doing nothing while the bleach cooks your hair and then they have to dye it and everything. Uh, and so you just, like, chat with the person a bunch. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I obviously went to, like, what have you been watching? Mm -hmm. I've watched 10, 11 movies in the past week. Because it's mm -hmm. the nine that are on here and then the Paris, Texas and Taste of Tea we watched, like, one week ago. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And she was like, I feel kind of boring because literally all I'm doing right now is watching Star Trek, the original series. Hell yeah. Um, and I was like, that's like, that's fun though. Uh, and she was like, yeah, I just have this like extreme affection for really, really like low budget props mm -hmm. where it's like, literally we just took a, a cardboard box and we put shit on it. Yeah. And that is like a device now in the show. I need to um, like, I need to tap into that part of my brain because I was there when I was watching Wonder Woman, um, and I just need to like find that love in my brain again, yeah. Um, and I, then I think TOS will click for me. Also, the first three episodes, just not very much Spock. Every time Spock is speaking, I'm like, oh, that's why people like this show. But the first yeah, three episodes, Spock is great. Yeah, Spock oh. and McCoy are great. Unfortunately, they barely feature very early on because I don't think the writers knew what they had yet. So. Yeah. 
I also have a very special place in my heart for Kirk, but... Uh, oh, Kirk is wonderful. Yeah. Kirk... Well, well, one, I really like Kirk. And two, I really like Kirk now that, like, I know Picard. Picard is the default yes. captain in my head. And so now going backward to Kirk, I'm like, these are the two most different people you could yeah. possibly imagine. <laughs> um, but well, the thing I was going to say, because when I was a kid, like my household was both a Star Wars and Star Trek mm. house. And so I watched like all the Star Trek movies. I watched uh, basically all of like the next generation, Deep Space Nine, a lot of I'm... the ones that were like going on at the time. Um, and I watched a fair amount of the original series, even beyond the movies. Um, and whenever I think of Kirk, I just think about like part of what's great about Kirk is like Kirk and Spock and Kirk and McCoy and yeah. stuff in a way where like, if you don't have those other big hitters, like mm-hmm. you don't have those characters in a way that's going to really feel good. Then I don't know how good Kirk is going to feel. Whereas someone like, who hasn't gone back and watched. Them. Whereas like Picard, you put him against anybody, you know. Picard yeah. sort of carries his own weight, whereas, like, Kirk is so fun as a, like, not reactionary as in, like, political, but, like, he is reacting to something. Yes. You know? Well, and also, like, the core, whenever I think of the original series, is Kirk being, like, very, like, again, not in the political sense, but, like, laissez-faire, like, yes. uh, very, like, suave and just, like, oh, I'm gonna, you know, try and pick up every single alien chick that I ever see. <laughs> and then Spock is all, like, I am like cold and intellectual mm. and methodical. And it's like, it's just odd couple. Yeah. Like it's the odd couple writing where you're like, okay, I can see why everyone yeah. shipped them. It, shipping them is the funnest thing to do in this show because they're just like the odd yeah. couple. Yeah. The absolute best part <laughs> of TOS that I've watched so far is literally like, and like, this is the thing one that I imagine TOS is just going to start doing more of, but two that like, TNG just like latches onto and we're gonna like we're gonna make this the whole show which is just that like so you get like 15 minutes of like stuff happening and you get to like oh there's a dangerous situation and and Kirk like calls Spock and McCoy to to the meeting room and they discuss the like dangerous situation they're in and I'm like oh that's why this show is popular yeah (laughs) this rocks (laughs) um well, also, I love real quick, real quick. Yeah. I love Captain Kirk's faggy little high heels. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's funny because, like, you don't notice it much because I shoot from the waist up. Um, in the like newer, newer show. I mean, that show is also like 30, 40 years old now. But like yeah. in TNG, you don't notice that they're all wearing like heeled boots. But in in TOS, you notice it constantly, and, and Shatner just wears him so faggy. <laughs> yeah. He's just strutting around. <laughs> Get him. Like, what else are you going to do with the show other than ship him? <laughs> He's the femme. Spock is the butch. Yeah. Like, but then sometimes, like, Spock's a little bit femme, and, and Shatner's, you know, Kirk's a little bit butch. It's fun. So yeah, that's what I've been up to. Um, anyway, like a half hour into the po- into this podcast, shall we get to the nine movies that I watch? Yeah, before we get to the main movie. Yeah. Since this is all just me, I'm gonna like probably try and move it a clip through some of this stuff. 
Sure. Um, also, I'm doing these. I've revealed the one that you definitely know. Well, also, real quick, I do know that a number of these you have watched because they're like, you would text me and be like, oh, you're going to be so surprised that I watched this. You texted me that a couple times. So, like, there will be times where I'm able to interject and be like, oh, you watched that? Shit. Oh, let's talk about it. So Yeah. Um. So this first one, you might not remember this, but might might not be that much of a surprise to you, which is uh, Come Drink With Me. Oh, right. Home. So we actually started this after we recorded last episode. Um, we were like, we have time. We recorded like a less than an hour. We can watch a movie. And you were so sleepy. We like I made was it maybe so 20 minutes in. I was so sleepy. <laughs> um, and I couldn't remember when this part happened. So I was just like, yeah, let's just stop. literally because I was just like, well, I'm going to finish watching this because I love this movie. Um, I picked it back up and like two minutes after we stopped is when uh, the drunken cat character comes in with his band of children and they sing a song. And I'm just like, God, we we were so close. We were so close <laughs> to this movie becoming amazing. <laughs> the um, part that I saw was just Dragon Inn. It was the same movie. Yeah. And there's definitely similarities here. Yeah. I was, that's the, not a complaint. Dragon Inn is a great movie. Yes. Uh, it's like when we watched Dragon Inn, it had been a while since I watched Come Drink With Me. And so I forgot how similar some of the stuff is. Um, for obvious reasons, this is before he moved. Yeah. This one is a lot less uh, heavy-handed in its political metaphor about, like, mm-hmm. uh, communism destroying culture or whatever. Yeah. Um, so that's a that's a point in its favor in my book. Yeah. Um, I do think that the fights in Dragon Inn are better. Okay. The final fight in Dragon Inn is great. It's fucking incredible. Yeah. Uh, against, like, that one guy. Uh-huh. Just, like, everyone, like, having their turn at him and... Um, the best parts of Dragon Inn are the start and the end, and everything in the middle, like, kind of goes up and down, I feel like. Yeah. And both of these start very similar in that, like, it's basically in an inn. Mm -hmm. The main character kind of strolls in, people are, like, messing with them. In this case, it's a woman who is dressed as a man, and in the way that it always is in these things, for the viewer, it's very obvious that this is just a woman, but because she's wearing, like, a masculine shirt or whatever, all of the characters are just, like, you know, little brother, sir... Yeah. Um, but, and then she, you know, they're like trying to mess with her and kill her. And she just like is very confident and, you know, doing all these little tricks that uh, are turning whatever they're trying to do back on them in a comical and yeah. fun way. Um, and she's like, oh, I didn't take any offense to you yes. slipping and accidentally throwing a knife at me or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You that know. kind of stuff. Um, but yeah. And so then. She's trying to find out this information, and then Drunken Cat comes in, and he's this drunken man with a, a bunch of school children, basically, who sing songs. And they, they sing this big number when they first appear, and then they're like, oh, weren't we so entertaining? Like, can you, like, pay us? They're basically trying to get some food, some money so that they can eat some food at the end. Um, and then ends up overhearing her, then is starting to give her information by performing songs, but in the songs doing coded information that's telling her information about where to find mm. the like person that she's looking for. Um, she ends up going, getting really injured. He goes and like rescues her. They end up teaming up and, you know, fighting on. But part of what's so fun about this one is that just like that jokey sequence in the inn is really good in this one. Yeah. It's also good in dragon Inn, but I feel like it's slightly better in this one. Um, 
also because you have the two characters, like the two main characters, you just really get like their personalities and them interacting in a way that's fun. Don't scroll down too far because then you'll see this other ones. I'm just seeing you scroll. I'm just I'm um, just scrolling to get the name of the movie in the thing. Oh yeah. Um and what else was I gonna say? Oh, and the other thing that's incredible about this that I, I just don't think Dragon Inn had in the same way is there's some stuff that I feel like must be like shooting on location at actual temples and stuff. Some of the shots of like landscape and like architecture is just absolutely fucking incredible. Um, it's fantastic. Um, just making this aerial. That's all. Oh. I mean, I'll do, I'll do this. Oh, thank you. Um, but yeah, so it's a great fucking movie. I, after watching it, I was like dragging in, I think depending on what you want from these movies, Dragon Inn could be better. If you want really good fight sequences, you're going to get more of that from Dragon Inn. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you want just like a really fun time with good characters and some incredible shots of like the landscape and things, um, come drink with me. It's going to be really cute. Um, and I don't remember the stairs in this because it was a while ago. Um, and there also, were some nice stairs in the inn, but they're like the same type of stairs that's in the in Dragon Inn. I feel like that was the only stairs we rated in Dragon Inn was the inn stairs. So Yeah. But I just don't remember if there was like more of a scene yeah. on it or not. Yeah. Um, so then and also this along with the next two that I'm gonna do, um, are ones that I watched while I was deep cleaning my house. So I'm just gonna paste both of these in because I'm having trouble doing it, but neither of them are gonna be like Blowing you away. Okay, um, I knew about one of these. So, uh, meet me with meet me in St. Louis. I watched. Um, I've now watched three Judy Garland movies, pretty close together. Um, I don't think I finished talking about the pirate, but um, I think the pirate was my least favorite. But also, like, so my favorite by far was Summerstock. That one was just really good. I'd recommend that to people. Um. I felt like the pirate had higher highs, but much lower lows. Mm-hmm. And Meet Me in the in St. Louis just kind of consistently, like, the songs are good, but sometimes a little stupid. Uh, well, aside also, from yeah, have yourself a merry little Christmas, which is fucking incredible. Yeah, That's the like, greatest Christmas yeah, song. <laughs> that is the high of this. Uh, the um, second greatest Christmas song. Yeah. Um, but then also like. I just was not that invested in this plot of like the tension of the, the entire movie is so there's the daughters who want to get married. Um, and then the dad gets this like job offer basically from his company to, to move to the offices in New York city from St. Louis. And then the whole big drama is like, Oh, but they're trying to court these guys here and we don't want to move to New York city. And you know, they're living in this massive house with like, the mom, dad, grandpa, a housekeeper that they pay and like keep to help them take care of the house and like four kids and a, or four daughters and a son. And on this one man's salary is able to support all of them. And they're like, Oh, us, us people, we're not rich. If we move to, to New York, we'd have to live in a flat. Um, and I'm just like, okay. Um, 
I just don't care about the stakes of like, oh no, we're going to move to New York City and then like our money is not going to go as far here we are in our mansion. Um, I also moved away from St. Louis and found my money not going as far, but you know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And also the whole end is like, it's so great to be in St. Louis. St. Louis is just the best dang place. Ah, fuck that. Fuck this movie. (laughs) (laughs) St. Louis sucks. Shitty place. Um, Glad I got out. (laughs) So yeah, I just didn't really care about the stakes at all. Um, In a way where it was literally just the music and some of I think it benefited by there's a fair amount of just like popular music at the time. Uh, but also some of the popular music in 1944 kind of fucking sucked. <laughs> Can I just quick, um, cause we're, we're just so off topic today. Um, so there is a podcast that I enjoy called Hark. Um, you can just find it by going by harkpodcast.com where, um, the hosts just listen to holiday music and um, rank it. And I thought that they agreed with me that Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas is the second best Christmas song of all time. But they've got it at number seven. Also, they've got a, the Frank Sinatra recording, which is not not what you want. I'm disagreeing with Hark on this. but um, I mean, maybe they'll come around to doing like the Judy Garland I'm one. sure th- I'm sure they have. I don't, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um... I also really like the Phoebe Bridgers, um, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. I don't yeah. think it's like the best recording of that, but I think it's a good one. Anyway, um, I was just going to talk about this briefly because they have, number one, I agree with them, Christmas Baby Please Come Home, best Christmas song. Number two, um, and I either you've heard this and you love this, or I'm about to tell you about something that you don't know about and might really enjoy, is that there is a... Um, it's called Alfie the Christmas Tree slash It's In Every One of Us, which is a John Denver with the Muppets um, Christmas song that is really fucking cute. I might know this, but I'm not knowing yeah. from the name. Yeah. You should just look up John Denver and the Muppets, which is just a great, like, I just love <laughs> yeah. that John Denver did a song with the Muppets. Um, a Christmas song, no less. Oh, the other the other thing with Meet Me in St. Louis that's not that great is there's no Gene Kelly, so mm. yeah, just what? watch Summerstock. It's the good, it's the best one. I was thinking about watching um, Jacques Demy's next movie after um, Umbrellas. He's also a musical and features Gene Kelly, so I was thinking about trying to watch that sometime soon. Yeah, I don't know. If, I don't know if we're gonna do that together. I'm just gonna. Um, the other one I watched that day. Oh. Uh, B minus. There's a there's a really fancy staircase in this like mansion, and they go up and down in it at various points. And there's the whole point where on Christmas night he decides, oh, all my family is so sad about moving to New York City because they just love St. Louis so much. I'm gonna decide that we're not gonna move. I'm gonna turn down the job opportunity. There's opportunity. New York City doesn't have a patent on opportunities. Is I think what he says. <laughs> there's opportunity to be found here too. Or whatever. This is propaganda. Yeah, it's it's, it's weirdly like St. Louis propaganda. <laughs> oh, it's I just very strange. I just mean like you know, I don't know prop propaganda about a good old fashioned Middle yes. American values. You yeah. know, St. Yeah. Louis could just as easily be Kansas City. Could just as easily be Omaha. Could just as yeah. easily, you know. Yeah, it's it is really about like couldn't that. be Chicago. I guess that's like a different thing. But yeah, you know. I'm kind of surprised that it wasn't. We're gonna move to Chicago. Yeah. 
because that would also just make perfect sense in this plot. Yes. Um, I guess this is even further because a big deal in this too is calling long distance because that's the other thing is that they're all like upset about like we're not going to have our marriage opportunities but one of the main marriage opportunities is the guy in New York City that's like falling through because she's not in fucking New York City so like <laughs> she's going to get married and the other guy's like we'll figure it out so I don't they even have, know why they care they have so many men in New York City <laughs> yeah <laughs> There are a lot. There are more than in St. Louis. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> the the plot is just so stupid. Um, but the moment where he has this change of heart, and it's Christmas Day and everything, uh, or no, Christmas night, so the, the evening. He he suddenly decides, and then he calls for everyone, and they run down the stairs, being like, "What's happening? What's happening?" Uh, so it does serve a significant part in the plot. Um, but it is also just some some old people mansion stairs that honestly if you're if you're rich old people with a mansion you can have even cooler stairs than this. So, yeah. Um we're not gonna we I'm not should, gonna like give you an S just because you have money. We should get you to watch the Magnificent Ambersons. Yeah. That's some fucking I, stairs. I if it was still on Criterion, I would have watched them this week. Oh, is it not? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I <clears throat> I, I don't hold that against you though. Yeah. Not that I would have either way, um, but <laughs> the the third movie that I watched entirely while cleaning my apartment was Party Girl, uh, which this was just in that noir and color collection. Oh, okay. Um, I was looking through it and I recognized the um, name Nicholas Ray. Yeah. Who I think most people know for Rebel Without a Cause. Yeah. Um, the big one that I always think of is actually In a Lonely Place, which is just this... fucking incredible. Well, so, okay, yeah. So... I thought about us doing it for this podcast at some point. So, yeah, the... <clears throat> Nicholas Ray, like one of the like big influences on French New Wave guys. Um, I have not. I've seen Rebel Without a Cause. I feel like I've seen one of his other movies. And then when I saw it on the spreadsheet, I was like, "Why was I just thinking about him recently?" And it was because I wanted after African Queen. I really wanted to watch In a Lonely Place. Yeah, because I have never seen that. I like Humphrey Bogart. It's, it's such a good fucking movie. Like literally <laughs> all over Humphrey Bogart's Wikipedia pages about how that's his best performance. So. I was yeah. I was thinking about it just this week. Um, How do you like Party Girl? Party Girl, uh, I enjoyed it. It was, it's not in a lonely place. Mm-hmm. Um, I just it didn't like hit in the same way. Um, but so like, basic plot of it. So it takes place in in Chicago, and it's like a slick uh, lawyer for the mob, basically. Uh huh. Um, and it starts with him. Meeting this this party girl who's like basically a showgirl, you know, um, and gradually falling in love with her. And then also there's like all of the plot going on and with mob infighting and everything. And he like, you know, whenever there's those, these murder trials, he's the one who defends them. Uh, and he's like one of those very slick, slimy lawyers who... Uh, you know, he has his watch trick where he, like, has this story about the watch and distracts people with the watch and whatever, mm-hmm. um, which has a big payoff at the very end. Um, and uh, one of the other things is, like, he, he uh, at some point he tells the story, and I forget exactly the details, but, like, when he was a little kid, basically was trying to impress a lot of people, um, like, a lot of other kids and did this like dangerous thing and he hurt his leg and he's had a limp ever since 
And at first, oh, everyone thought it was so cool because he, like, did this, um, you know, this dangerous, reckless thing. But then they just got older and he just, and, like, stopped thinking he was cool and he just still had a limp. Um, and so there's some disability stuff that comes up in this where, like, his wife ended up leaving him because she didn't like that he was disabled, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, there's like the possibility that he could get surgery to fix it. Um, and some of that stuff is handled well. And some of it is also like him feeling like, Oh, the, like this outward deformity or disability I have is like reflecting the, the like inward way that I'm also like crooked and, and like broken as a man. Mm -hmm. So it's also kind of doing some of that. That's a little bit less. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it makes sense for a movie from, when was this 58 yeah but, sure all uh, right i'm yeah. not saying i'm not saying it's like the best depiction yeah. of disability stuff. doesn't make it excusable just <laughs> yes. like yeah okay what yes. was i expecting um and basically in in the end like he ends up he ends up in prison and then basically he can he can get out if he works with the police uh she is trying to help him work with the police um so that he can get out of prison and like these mobsters will, will go away. And, um, was the Hayes code still going on in 58? Was what? Hayes code. What is that? End mm, exactly? I was just looking into this the other day. Cause I was explaining some of it to Nora. Yeah. Like, I don't. Okay. Yeah. So the Hayes code was, was still, um, I think it was starting to, to last in a little bit at this point. Yeah. It's like, if you look it up, like the first Google will tell you, 1934 to 1968 but it's like one of those things where like it doesn't really start to get enforced until like 37 and it and then like people kind of stop enforcing it into the 60s you know yeah like and so this is one that like i watched it and i was like this feels like a haze code movie because uh everyone who is like clearly morally evil and doing terrible things to hurt people um like gets punished in the end mm-hmm uh, and you kind of just know from the structure that this is probably how it's going to play out, that her being, like, very innocent, um, you know, is, like, this showgirl, but it's just, like, kind of, like, it makes it clear how she's been, like, forced into this life and everything. She's obviously not going to get hurt, even though the plot is going to, like, threaten her repeatedly. Right. Um, and the, <clears throat> the one thing that's interesting with it is, I think, one within its kind of, po like, its position during the Hayes Code. Mm -hmm. um, as well as, like, the way that they've set up his character, the big question throughout it is, is he going to get hurt? Is he going to survive? Because they've made so much of the, like, the fulcrum tension of the entire piece, him being this, like, morally corrupt, like, compromised person, is he actually able to, like, push through that and... Uh, try to like make amends and and uh, you know recognize that he's not broken or is he going to just like continue to double down on these things or will he but still get punished for it in the end even as he had a change of heart and all of that is the part that remains in suspense mm -hmm. as as someone who's familiar with these kinds of movies where um, the Hayes Code is kind of pre preordained how so much of this is going to go yeah so that was my favorite part of it was just. A lot of it, I knew that the, like, gangsters were going to get fucked up somehow. Um, I knew that she was going to be fine. 
but I didn't really know what was going to happen with him. And that was that was kind of fun for a movie from this era where often you really this was see like, so clearly what the plot is going to be. One of the other, like, on the Criterion this month, like, noir and color movies that I watched, Niagara, that I talked about briefly yeah. the other day, was uh, part of the fun of that movie was you just, you're introduced to Marilyn Monroe and Joseph Cotton's characters, and you just know that by the laws of how movies are made at this time, like, oh, these people are both going to die by the end of this movie. <laughs> yeah. And that also works the movie's detriment because the movie kind of goes on too long as it has to contrive a reason for Joseph Cotton's character to die. But, um, like, just the moment you meet these two people, they are just, like, doomed to die by, like, the sort of, like, meta-narrative stuff. Yeah. And so it's just kind of fun to watch them spiral. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it was an enjoyable film. Uh, the, the colors are pretty good in it for, you know, like, it has that kind of feeling of... Uh, not super early color, but still like in that period where sometimes colors were just like weirdly vibrant. And, yeah, that's yeah. that was also how I felt about Niagara, where it was like, I don't know if this was the director's first color movie, but it sort of felt like, well, let's just put all the damn colors on screen. Yeah. Let's just do all of them. <laughs> um, and I do not remember if there are any stairs in here. I know there are parts where it is like, notable that they are like upstairs at a place or whatever uh -huh. right like there are times when it, you are like intentionally supposed to know what like floor they are on and things but also i think it is made at that time in like a type of studio environment where you don't actually see them walk upstairs usually yeah you see them starting to walk upstairs and then cut to you here's the other floor and they're finishing walking up the stairs yeah so i put question marks because maybe there was some like, I feel like there were stairs in this movie, but I also could not tell you any stairs in this movie. So, yeah, I think there's just a lot of parts where stairs are suggested. Mm -hmm. um, this next one. Yeah, this one you guessed. I guessed this um, from my my call for questions email. Yeah. Although I did watch multiple movies where crimes are happening in the heat of summer. <laughs> but I did watch In the Heat of the Night. Yeah. Hot Summer Night. This movie was fucking incredible. Yeah! <laughs> um, this movie fucking rocks! <laughs> I'm saying! Sidney <laughs> um, Poitier's, like, acting is just... He's fucking, fucking incredible! Yeah. The, the parts in this, like... You know, I kind of knew the basic premise of this, which you've talked about before, but basically... Mm. Uh, a man is found dead by a police officer um, in the street, and then they're looking around to find who did it, and run across a black man, and they're just like, well, the black man must have done it, and they take him in, and yeah. he reveals in the course of questioning that he is a cop, and then they're like, whoa. <laughs> uh, we gotta, like, shift gears a little bit from just immediately pinning it on this guy. Um, and then, you know, they call up, like, the... They are even, like, checking in on a supervisor to make sure that, yeah. you know, it really is who he claims to be. Um, and uh, the supervisor is like, no, he's, like... My best our, homicide yeah, detective. Yeah, my best homicide detective. You should put him on this case. And they're like, oh. And so then it's just a bunch of racist white cops who have to work with this black yeah. cop to solve a case. Um, and they're... There's a part where I was like, mm, I was getting a little bit worried because uh, they're going through it and like he keeps like disproving 
all the hunches that they get, which are they're like clearly just trying to find someone who they can say they did it, so they did the job. Mm. Um, and he keeps kind of ha- like actually having evidence and pulling those out and saying blah 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 and like going and talking to people to get more clues of places to go to look and he has hunches and stuff and then he ties it to this like um guy who owns like a cotton plantation and then they're like oh you know you just want to get him Mm. you're as bad as us uh and the movie wasn't going to fully go that way but i thought there was still going to be a part where they like kind of like it ended up not being him and i was like oh i don't want it to be that Mm -hmm. uh but no it is still there is still the moment where he's like i was a little bit blinded because i did just want to get this guy because i knew that he did it but he did have accomplices and i was not like paying attention to the fact that there was evidence that he needed to have accomplices yes and so in addition to getting the the rich plantation owner they also get one of the one of the police officers right Uh, this is like kind of spoiling oh who cares whatever (laughs) the point of it is not really who done it yeah um but the part that the part that i was just struck with is like being um like incredible so one is that some of this has like there's the other main cop who's like the sheriff Mm -hmm. uh and he ends up kind of coming around on this guy gradually throughout it yeah um and a lot of that reminded me of uh there's a a story that stud circle loved to tell that was about uh a man who went from being um the like grand cyclops or something of the kkk to organizing a union of black women hmm uh, and telling the story of how he like gradually came around and, and changed and like, you know, through meeting people and stuff was able to like confront his prejudices and realize how wrong he was and ended up finding more commonality with these people. Uh, and it's a great story. And I think it's a story that like, you know, in the 60s through the 90s, people love to tell because it's a feel good story about how white people can change and right. be less racist. And this is a little bit that. But there are some moments that, like, mm-hmm. uh, in this movie that, like, kind of challenge that and push at it and make it not just this, like, pure feel-good thing. And the yeah. best is the part where, um, uh, what's then Tibbs? Yeah. Uh, Cindy Poitier's. Yeah. Uh, they call me Mr. Tibbs. Yeah, Mr. Tibbs. Um, he's staying at the the home of the sheriff. I Real quick. Um, our friend Crystal recently watched it and, um, in her letterbox review, like hit on this same scene. And I just, okay. I am so tickled that you two both keyed on in on Yes, This has always been my favorite part of the movie, but please. Yeah. Go. Um, and so, yeah, there, there's this moment where they are like, it's, they're just alone in this white sheriff's home mm-hmm. and they're just sitting and throughout all of it, like Tibbs has just been having to deal with like all the tensions of these white people that hate him mm-hmm. and clearly he just doesn't want to in the way that is i think relatable if you're sometimes in scenarios with people who are prejudiced against you mm-hmm. and you have to just kind of deal with that um and so he's just like always trying to manage these and it's just like clearly taxing on on him to have to be in that position at all times. And finally they're just in this home and he's like, I can maybe finally start relaxing. The, the white sheriff seems like he's relaxing. He starts talking about how he's like lonely and everything. And I'm like, yeah, I feel the same. And then immediately the white sheriff turns. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, no, 
Yeah. Like, we don't feel the same way. Yeah. You can't feel the same emotions as me. Yeah. You can be a great detective, but you can't have, like, the same emotions as me. That's literally almost exactly what Crystal said in her her letterbox. Like, I am more willing to accept that you're smarter than me than you are as human as I am. Yeah. And it's it's sucking incredible. Because there's still the feel-good moment for this being a movie Uh in the 60s where at the end... You know, yeah, seeing him off, and he's got that whole like, oh, we're buds now. But, uh, Jackson also recently watched this, and I was texting them, and I was like, yeah, I do think it still kind of ends on sort of that like sappy feel good moment. And Jackson was like, I don't know, I think it sort of has that, but I think like they never yeah. resolve what happens yes. in like the sheriff's home. Well, the, yeah, like what Jackson said w- was like they have this feel good moment. But the sheriff would still absolutely call him the N-word, you know? Yeah. Well, and the the sheriff... Well, that's also the thing of, like, we more see it from the sheriff perspective of, like, yes, I respect you. Mm-hmm. But we are already kind of seeing that. And we never fully get that, like... We don't get the, the scene in the, you know, in the home resolved. We still just kind of get him... We There's a very easy way to read the end as, oh... This white man has a black friend now. Yeah. Who is going to say my black friend? Yes. You know? <laughs> and that doesn't, like, that doesn't actually fully resolve it. Uh-huh. Um, and so I think there is a way to be cynical about it. Oh, yeah. it's the, look, they can see past, like, thing. but, and I think some of it too is that just, like, Sidney Poitier is playing the character so well that it just refuses to ever let it fully fall into just that. You should, I, be- I believe it's not on the channel anymore, but if it comes back, you should check out No Way Out. It is, I believe, Sidney Poitier's, like, first major role in a film. Um, It's from, I want to say, 55, could be off by a little bit. But, like, very similar premise, very similar scenario, but it's such a weird movie because they- Poitier is never... People are always talking about him, but he he very rarely gets to stretch his wings as an actor. And when I saw that movie, I thought of this movie so much because it is like this movie in some ways feels like a redo of No Way Out, but like actually making the story about like centered on him rather than him almost like his blackness being sort of a MacGuffin. You know, yeah. to that movie. I re- and I'm really fond of that movie. I think there's a lot of stuff that movie does well, but it is watching that movie and then revisiting in the heat of the night, like a month or two later. It's just like, wow, yeah, <laughs> in the heat of the night's fucking incredible. <laughs> um, I love that movie. Ready for this next one? This is the big one that I don't think you know that I watched, and I'm expecting a big reaction. Okay, from. okay. And before I before I put this in. I've never seen this movie before, which I also don't know if you know. Okay. So 1976. Yes. You've given it a B for stairs. Um, oh, I did an, an F with a question mark for In the Heat of the Night because I don't remember. I, I don't believe there are any stairs. When I talked about that recently, yeah. I don't believe there were any stairs. Um, 1976. What do we... I think Taxi Driver's 1976. I imagine you've seen Taxi Driver. I've Driving. seen Taxi Driver. It's Driving. hard to imagine you hadn't seen Taxi Driver. What else came out in 76? Uh, Man Who Fell to Earth, but you've seen that. Um, 76. Just trying to think. There's not a Spielberg movie that comes out in 76, I don't think. 
At least nothing that you wouldn't have seen already. If there's something that comes out between Jaws and Close Encounters that I'm not thinking of, I assume you would have seen it. <laughs> um, I don't know. I can't. I can't think of what it would be. Movies now more than ever. I did know this. I did know this. Y- yes, you mentioned this. I forgot. <laughs> I watched Mikey and Nikki. Hey, you know what movie rocks? Mikey and Nikki. Yeah. Ooh, it was fucking good. <laughs> I watched a lot of good fucking movies. Yeah. Um. Oh, also, Party Girl, I forgot to mention this at the beginning, is uh, kind of the start of this line of me watching a bunch of crime movies, but a fair number of them are not really about the crime in any way. Yeah. Um, and Mikey and Nikki is one of the, the best of them, because it is like, oh, something happened, something broke bad, there's like a hitman out after... Mm-hmm. Um, the most incompetent yeah. hitman. <laughs> yes. Uh, after uh, after one of them, and they're, like, going around. But so much of the plot of it is not really about that. I mean, it is in that, like, they're going around together and trying to, like, escape the hitman, kind of. Do you... And then you get the whole, like, turn at the end, but... Do you know how this is like a was like low key like a wildly expensive movie like one of the most expensive movies of the of its day? Because I could, I could maybe see it, but so what what had happened was Elaine May, like literally, she would just get Cassavetes and Falk into a location. There's no sets; it's all on location, and she would just let the cameras roll, and yeah. like there would be people like the actors aren't on screen right now. She's like, keep rolling. They might come back. And she would just be like, <laughs> and like, like, okay, we shot all the script. Just, just keep going. Just keep talking. And she would just like, have them keep talking without a script and just like making things up and improvising. And like, there's like, apparently like the movie, like if you just put out all the footage, it was like 60 hours of footage yeah. So just like a crazy expensive movie because film is not cheap. <laughs> yeah. Or there's like the cemetery sequence where they had to like shut down the highway and Elaine May is just like shooting like 20 minute sec like 20 minute takes where they have to shut down the highway so there's no car sounds going by. <laughs> it's just like a weirdly bizarrely expensive movie. I yeah. love this movie. If you can't tell, you know I love this movie because yeah. it's the sort of movie I looked up weird production facts like that. <laughs> um you should somewhere... One thing, I mean we're we're going long to where some of to Summergram like Go just listen to the repertory screenings about this, but also uh-huh. it's fucking incredible. Yeah. Um, Maybe that's like, that's like a thing where I could imagine us like after um, we finish Lynch, it's just like, let's play the hits. Like, let's actually do Mikey and Nikki, you know? Yeah. Um, You should watch also on the Criterion channel. There's like, it, it maybe is, I don't remember what it's part of, but somewhere on the Criterion channel, there is an interview with Peter Falk where about him going and asking John Cassavetes to be in this movie. Basically Elaine may approaches Peter Falk and then he goes and approaches Cassavetes and Cassavetes is just like, yeah, sure. I'll do it. And Peter is like, Peter, I know him. (laughs) Peter Falk is like, I haven't even told you what the movie's about. He's like, Oh no, I'll do it. It's fine. Whatever. (laughs) Peter Falk's telling the story is really funny because they're just the two characters in real life. (laughs) Um, 
Yeah, it is. This is one of the most, like, uh, intensely real movies about, like, guy friendships. Yeah. That I say as someone who was not really a guy, but mm. was in those spaces at one time in my life. I have a I have a coworker who I talk about, like, sports a lot with, and now we just sort of talk about, like, we started, when we met, we were not friends. Yeah. And then we sort of started talking about sports, and we're, like, kind of friendly now. And then we talk about all sorts of life stuff. He'll just tell me about, like, oh, yeah, I was at the bar last night, and I was talking to this guy. And, like, he'll just tell me a story, you know? And it's, like, weird because, like, I'm not a guy. But when I talk to this friend, like, we're just guy friends. Yeah, you can, <laughs> like, like, you can like, turn it on. Yeah. Like, I just remember what it was like to have guy friends, and I become a guy for, like, a couple hours at work. <laughs> um... I didn't have. I did not have quite that relationship, but there was a guy who I closed with a bunch when I worked at mm. a coffee shop. Uh, the same uh, chain of coffee shops, but different location, but also in Chicago. Yeah, is the one that you work at. Yeah. Um, we're not going to mention the chain. You can figure it out. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, he was like, he's the one that I joke around with somewhere. I think he was just too far into like, uh. <laughs> like guy in your MFA territory guy for me to like ever <laughs> fully like be able to get at just like, we are just like guys hanging out on uh. our shift. Um, there was always just a part of me that was like a little bit sneering with him, but also where it became part of the bit. Mm. Um, but there was still the moment, like the one that I always remember is he was talking about how much he loves Wrigleyville, which for people who don't know is <clears throat> um, if you go, Chicago to Wrigley Field, the neighborhood around it is called Wrigleyville, and it's primarily known for being where, like, 50 sports bars are within, like, five blocks. Right. That's an exaggeration, but not really. <laughs> not by much. <laughs> not by much. Um, and it's just the most, like, sports bro area. Uh, and he was talking to me, like, at length about how, like, he loves Wrigleyville because it's just, like, the the, like most like fucked up that like human beings can be it's just like the uh, like it's like we're like uh you know um like truly like pushing the boundaries of like society because you'll like walk and in the alley will alleyway it'll just be like some guy and girl having sex and i'm like my guy go like five blocks over to boys town which is literally yeah. in the same neighborhood yes. as wrigleyville there are some basements I can send you to where you're going to see stuff that's more transgressive <laughs> than a guy and girl fucking in an alleyway. Dude, um, you should come to the coffee shop I work at. Men just have <laughs> sex there. A lot. That's just a thing that gay men do wherever yeah. they damn well please. <laughs> Sorry um, to any gay men in the audience, but y'all nasty. <laughs> um... I still, I always just think about, I've told this story, I think before on this podcast, and I know multiple times before, which is that there was a, a gay bar that I used to go to in Boys Town, and the, the basement level was just like all bathrooms. Mm -hmm. And the last time I was in there, I went down and there were just two guys fucking, and I just walked down right as the one man was coming on the, the other man's face. Uh-huh. And then, like... Uh, people like straight white people with money 
moved into that neighborhood in a way that they hadn't quite been there before. You're right. And they replaced that bar with a Furious Spoon, which is a ramen shop. And they turned the basement into the kitchen. Which, <laughs> one, is just like, I would not, I don't care how much you scrubbed everything in there. I would not eat food out of that basement. But also, I just always then think of, like, ramen noodles going into the bowl being cum hitting a man's face. Because <laughs> it's just the vivid memory I have of that part. Uh, anyway, that man also the not the man who got not any of the the gay men I'm talking about. The guy who I worked with, who thought that Wrigleyville was the most transgressive you could be, can, also had a little bit of that like Mikey and Nikki vibe. Can I tell you another quick work story? <laughs> yeah. So I I I work. This is the best way to talk about Mikey and Nikki because this is just <laughs> this is just <laughs> going to digressions about guys, you know. <laughs> This is just what the actual movie is like. Yes. <laughs> um, so we have. Some... By the way, he is Peter Das. We do know him by first name now. Yeah. <laughs> actual real life angel <laughs> turned into human. Peter Falk. Um. So so I work really close to. Um, I feel like people who are not from Chicago don't get this. Like, one people understand Lake Michigan's huge, right? <clears throat> I feel like people who are not from here, because I definitely didn't know this about Chicago before I moved here. Like, people just go to the beach. Like, there are just, like, yeah. beaches on, like, Michigan, and people just go and have beach days like you would if you lived in a coastal city. Yeah. You know? You're probably less likely to go into the water. Yes. But people go, and they tan, and they drink, and they play volleyball and stuff. Yeah. Whatever people do on beaches. I don't know. I'm a shut-in. Um, it's, it's because... I mean, they reverse the river so that it will will go to St. Louis, but it's because we dump all of our shit in there. <laughs> Literally, the sewage just goes into like Michigan, and then it goes down the river to St. Louis. So we literally reversed the river to fuck over St. Louis. So I don't know when they did that, but I don't know why Judy Garland's so excited to have shit in a river. <laughs> anyway, so we live, or I work really close. I mean, we do also live pretty close to the beach but like i work really close to the beach like yeah. i'll have coworkers be like oh i'm gonna go to the beach on my 30 you know yeah um i don't know why you would want to do that because you would have to walk back like a couple minutes later i don't know what you're gonna do at the yeah. beach in 10 minutes but whatever <laughs> this is also in a way where like if you're not from chicago it doesn't make any sense but there's like a, a artery street like a really major street mm -hmm. that you are east of and anything east of there it's like you are like by the beach. Yeah. And if you're like west of there, it's like it's still not hard for you to get to the beach, but you just don't describe yourself as being like by the lake. Right. The same way. So we get we get especially now in the summer, we get a ton of people who are going to the beach and I have like these semi regulars who are this really funny gay couple. One of them um makes me laugh a lot. I don't think I've ever seen him sober because usually when I see him, I see him like once a week. And he's coming back from the beach. Yeah. Uh, this week, when I saw him, he had a star... Whatever. He had a cup with him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I was like, oh, do you want us to put your drink in, like, that officially branded cup that you have right there? And he's like, oh, I didn't know that you all could take personal cups again. Because we stopped doing that for a while because of COVID. And now we do that again. Um... 
<laughs> and I was like, yeah, sure, here, I'll throw it in there. He's like, oh, give me one second. And he just, like, starts, like, slurping. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, I didn't realize you had a drink in there. <laughs> and his boyfriend is like, oh, he had a drink, all right. And I was like, oh, don't worry. I know what he keeps in there. <laughs> I'm like, I know. But I was not prepared for, like, I think I just accidentally made this poor person, like, chug, like, a whole 26 ounces. I, far as I could tell, because he was sloshed by the time he got his drink, I think he just drank 26 ounces of vodka. <laughs> I'm not sure. But, but he was going to town on that. <laughs> This is also one of the men who's come in the store who I've had to be like, "Can you please put on a shirt when you're in the in the food establishment?" And he's like, "Oh yeah." I had a couple of people be like, "I don't have to wear a shirt in here." I'm like, "Yeah, you do." But he's just like, "Oh, I forgot I wasn't wearing a shirt. Thanks, bro." <laughs> <laughs> um he's living his life. <laughs> I don't know his name. Not that I would say it on the podcast, but I don't know his name. <laughs> um, this is this is just slightly getting us back to the movie. One of the like wildest moments just stands out to me. Like there are like many great moments of just these actors being incredible actors working off yeah. of each other. But there's one moment that just like really stood out to me. It was this one where I think it's Peter Falk's character. Mm-hmm. They're in like a uh, like diner or whatever late at night, and suddenly it's just like. I thought the phone ring rang. Like, what would happen if that phone rang? What if someone did that, like, had a, an office in here? And I was just like, this is such a weird fucking moment. But also, like, <laughs> I've just had that moment where you're, like, at a late night diner with someone. And then you just start talking about the weirdest fucking shit. Um, it was so real, but in, like, a very bizarre way. It just, like, wormed its way into my brain. I, I think about that diner scene a lot because, like, I, I've certainly talked about this on the podcast before one of the things that i get most nostalgic for is back when i used to live near a 24-hour ihop and it would just be like i had a bunch of guys who lived in the same building that i did and basically like we would like study and have some drinks from like you know like 8 to 11 and then we would go to ihop and like maybe we would bring a couple papers with us and we would like say we're gonna study but we would mostly just go hang out at this 24-hour IHOP from, like, 11 p.m. to, like, 3 a.m. And just, like, have coffee and cigarettes. <laughs> and and sometimes when I get nostalgic for that, I will literally just think of those scenes from this movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, great fucking movie. Everyone should watch it. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm going to put the next one in here. <clears throat> Oh, I've been meaning to watch this. Yeah. How did you like it? It was really good. I Can you tell the so, name? Uh, Body Heat. Yeah. Um, I have this just like in chronological order of when these crime movies were released. Um, okay. So we have two more, one you already know. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but Body Heat, this is the one. I did text you a little bit about this one, but I didn't give you any details. Um, oh, for Mikey and Nikki, I did uh, B, which I think is primarily the part where they're in the... Um, like apartment when he first calls and then they're going down the stairs and then there's the whole thing about like, what if someone's out there? Like let's switch jackets and everything. But uh-huh. there's the whole part of them. Like, yeah. And it is very, in- the reason why I gave it a B, which I think is higher than you gave it. One is the stairs look pretty good. Yeah. And two, there's a whole thing about 
let's take the elevator and uh, after Peter Falk's character, I have forgotten. I this don't know which Mikey one's which. <laughs> yeah, um, I think Peter Falk is Mikey. I have no. And idea. I think Nikki is the yeah John Cassavetes. Uh, John Cassavetes, uh, but. Uh, as soon as uh, Peter Falk is like, let's take the elevator, then John Cassavetes is like, stairs it is. And they go down the stairs. And I was like, they, <laughs> this was almost an elevator scene, but he knew. This needed to be a stairwell scene. <laughs> so, uh, be in my book for that. Uh, um, so, Body Heat, I'll just start with the stairs and then I can talk some more about it. Uh, this is probably the closest of any of these movies. There's another one I'm going to talk about that also kind of fits into this, but this one I think actually has more just like erotic thriller tension mm-hmm. to it, um, where it is kind of the, the adult section, um, mm-hmm. but not too much. But yeah. Um, uh, so I'll do a little bit and I'll get to the stairs and I'll write them. Um, so basically, uh, I'm trying to remember the, the actors in this, maybe I'll just pull this up instead of having to continue to do stuff on my phone, which is not, I watch so many movies that I'm like losing track of. Um, so William Hurt, I believe is the, um, lawyer. Oh, is this a riff on double indemnity? Um, yeah, I think so. Okay. That's what I'm getting from the first one. Yes. I've been meaning to watch this and knowing that it is sort of doing a double indemnity has moved it up my list. Yeah. Uh, so, so he is this like, uh, kind of shady lawyer. Um, and he ends up meeting this woman who's played by Kathleen Turner. Um, sorry, I was going to click on Lawrence Kasdan's Wikipedia page. And then I realized you were probably reading this. So <laughs> yeah. he did do the Empire Strikes Back. Well, that's he, he, he wrote it, but yeah. yeah, I was just like, what else? I, was, I couldn't remember what all he'd written. That's all. Um, I believe he also wrote Raiders, but I could be wrong. Yeah. Anyway, um, meets this woman kind of seemingly by chance. Kathleen Turner plays her. Um, her husband, um, like mostly don't live together, but he comes on the weekends and things seem a little like not great or something. Um, and then they start having an affair, especially because he's not there very often. But she's like. She's, like, very meticulous, even early on, where um, it's, like, I have to wash these sheets before the maid comes to wash the sheets, because not even the maid can know that I'm having an affair. Mm. She's, like, very, very careful about how she does everything. Um, That's not a good picture of Kathleen Turner for, like, communicating to you who Kathleen Turner is. Um. Yeah, I'm trying to like see what other movies I might know her from. Anyway, Sorry, you're just, you, you I, go. Wait, this was her first role? Damn, she's great in this. Oh, um, she's in she Romancing the Stone. Stone. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, like, so many sequels to Romancing the Stone. It's weird. So anyway, they, they start <laughs> up having an affair. And so this is where the, the stairwell comes up. Because, uh-huh. uh, so there's a whole, like they're having this like flirty conversation and everything. Um, and then in a way that is like, seems consensual of what she wants to have happen. He is outside. She's closed the like glass sliding doors or whatever. And he's like looking at her through the window and she's looking, standing at the bottom of the stairs and looking at him. And then he picks up a like piece of like patio furniture or whatever and throws it through the fucking door 
and walks in through the like broken glass door and like grabs her and like kisses her. Um, and she's clearly into it. It's like fucking hot to have a man throw a a (laughs) chair through your door to come in and fuck you. Uh, and then they fuck right on the stairs. Okay. They fuck right on the stairs. They introduced a new type of stairwell scene that we've not seen on ornate stairwells yet, which is a stairwell sex scene. Okay. So they fuck right on the stairs. Um, as it goes on, they end up, uh, plotting that what they're going to do is kill her husband. And, um, she's been very meticulous about the affair. Uh, but then seemingly once it comes to the plan to kill the husband, um, she, he is like, you know, been working with shady types and everything. He's got a guy who can like get him an explosive to make it look like they're in the fire in this one building and stuff. Um, and, uh, he ends up going, uh, killing the husband they take the body to the other place and burn that building down like arson. And then his body's in there. Um, and then it looks like he died in a fire basically. Um, and he's like, she's like, he, in comparison to how careful she was with like the affair stuff, seems a lot more like over eager with some of this stuff and like not being as careful. And she says like, Oh, we should get him to like rewrite the will before this happens because right now most of the money is going to go to this like other woman, like his like <clears throat> um, previous wife or something. Um, and the the uh, lawyer is like, no, like for this to be a, like the perfect crime, we gotta like nothing out of the ordinary happens in this man's life. Until we kill him. Mm -hmm. Because if anything out of the ordinary happens, that's like a thing that is going to like, right. You know, uh, cue people off. Um, yes, it would make sense to like update the will where it would be half to both of you. Um, but you're still going to get some money from it. Uh, it's going to be enough for us. Really what we want is just to be together anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, then the, uh, the murder happens and everything. And that involves the husband going down the stairs. So that's also fucking great for a stairwell scene. Um, and then getting like murdered. Uh, there's like a whole scuffle and stuff. Um, and then after that, the, he gets a call from another attorney being like, Hey, uh, like a, a week ago, it says that you did this, like, change this will the man's dead now uh there's some like inconsistencies blah mm-hmm. blah blah and he finds out that she went behind his back did it and like faked his signature but in the immediate moment is like i'm not going to be like no that wasn't me or whatever he's mm-hmm. like kind of thrown for a loop and is like oh that's unusual you know like i i don't really know them that well um but still loves her. So then like two and one of his buddies is like a, a cop uh, who is played by Ted Danson. And this is when I texted you. Oh my God, that's Ted Danson. Dude, um, without calling me what the movie was. So I was just like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the whole plot starts unraveling and there are great twists and turns and, you know, wonderful. ending. And I'm going to spoil this movie because I think it's very fun to, mm. to go through the rest of the, the journey here. Um, 
but um yeah it's it was a really really fun movie um the other part that's great is most of the scenes that take place in her home she has these wind chimes outside and it just like punctuates everything where you just kind of constantly get this like twinkling sound from the wind chimes Mm -hmm. uh just like gives some fantastic sound design hell yeah um but yeah things just like continue to to break bad for this man um and it's really fun before we move on to the next movie i need to use the restroom okay yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. Next year all our troubles will be out of sight. Have yourself a merry little Make the Yuletide gay Next year all our troubles will be miles away Once again as in olden days Happy golden days of I'm still in the the bathroom. Um, I'm checking Twitter. And so I follow the actual account of Peter Gallagher, uh, who is the the current artist of Heathcliff the Cat. And on a co-host on Heathcliff, I tweeted um, a panel from a comic of just like Heathcliff, like peeking off over the edge. Um, And I I captioned it something like, um, you know, Heathcliff sees your chose and, approves of your timeline or whatever forget exactly what it was and then like austin walker um re-chosted it being like uh <laughs> yo they even got heathcliff on this or whatever on co-host mm-hmm. uh anyway peter gallagher himself the man who draws it just tweeted the panel that i did which makes me wonder if he has now seen my my co-host page of heathcliff 
your your pirate pirate radio feed. Yeah. Is that um, what is that what you call a radio station? A pirate radio station? Radio feed? Is that a thing that anyone's no. ever said? I said it and I was like, that's wrong. It's for right? podcasts. He <laughs> said feed and then I was like, I um, think that's incorrect. Anyway, are we back? Um <clears throat> we're back. All I'm saying is that Peter Gallagher may have seen my co-host page about me. It's possible. You have hand soap in your bathroom, which is the same brand and scent as the candle that is on my coffee table right now, which was very weird. Hmm. It smells good. Yeah, it's great. I love it. Rose and cedar. Great combination. Yeah. I like floral smells a lot. My favorite is geranium. Anyway, I watched Manhunter. Yeah! (laughs) Um... Real quick, I'm calling Molly. She's getting her on the podcast. <laughs> Molly also watched Manhunter. Yeah, like literally, like within 24 hours of me watching it. Yeah, um, I think within like 12 hours. Yeah, I I was like, yo, I just watched that, and she was like, yeah, I think it was like same day. Yeah, and she was like, yeah, I went to pull it up to f- make sure it was the right one on Letterboxd and saw that you had just watched it. <laughs> um. Anyway, uh, Manhunter was fucking good. Yeah, dog. It- <laughs> It was extremely 80s. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I think people have talked a lot about Manhunter, so I don't know like how much extra I'm going to say, other than like a few observations that I'm sure other people have made. But um, so much of the the like movie starts being about seeing. Like this becomes like one of the key pieces when he's trying when Will Graham is trying to solve the case. Is like, oh, it's all about seeing for you, you know, figures out that, like, uh, the Red Dragon, a.k.a. Tooth Fairy, um, Mm. a.k.a. whatever, Dollar something. Francis Dollaride. Yeah, Dollaride. Um, He uh, gets, like, the family videos and watches them. Yeah. Himself. Um, And that's, like, part of how he, like, figures out and, like, plans and everything. And also this like weird obsession with the people that he has. Mm-hmm. Um, but also when that happened, I was like, oh, because so much of this movie has also been about like in a way that I've just been watching a bunch of these like crime movies. And this is the most like the one that feels the most just artificial uh-huh. in that like there are just so many shots where like even if it's like an establishing shot, it is like a building that is like has the bare minimum of trees that need to be around it. And then you just see like sky that is just like a void of a color. I always think about the final shot of the movie with Will Graham on this beautiful beach in Miami with his wife and kids and it is the fakest looking bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> like purposefully so. Like they yes. have to know how like yes. this looks like we faked it for a postcard, you know? Um but yeah, everything is so like like this movie in general, everything is so constructed to be like an image. Uh-huh. Uh in a way that like some of these other movies like Mikey and Nikki is not constructing, like, an image in the same way. No, no. Because so much more of it is, like, uh, like, I feel like Body Heat had some more stuff that felt like, oh, this is, like, possibly on location and things. Yeah. Um, Well, so much of Mikey and Nikki is about, like, movement and motion and spontaneity, whereas Manhunter feels like 
it's painterly. Yes. You know? Um, and we're in a, in a weird way the like a few moments that break out of it are the home videos. Yeah. Um, and even those still have like a certain constructedness to them, but also are the ones that feel, um, I don't know, that feel like kind of the loosest. We watched multiple things with like home video footage. And I was just thinking about the, the like mm-hmm. kind of weirdness of like movies that oh right we're here to talk about my favorite Paris, movie Texas. i forgot i forgot we're here to talk about Paris, yeah. Texas. i thought we were just chatting <laughs> um <laughs> i'm just telling you all the movies that i've seen and then we're gonna end yeah um yeah that, that was like one of the biggest things that stood out to me because i'm sure like it seems like the all the stairs that are like around uh-huh. the prison that's probably like a that was when I watched this location or something last year, um, and rated it on the podcast. That that was what I pulled out was the stairs outside the asylum where he's like has the first conversation with Lecter and he like runs away. Yeah, but also I I gave it an A plus, which I forget what you did, but because there's also in that the there's also the um the beginning shot is I was like, did I download a fucked up file? I thought I downloaded one from, like, the good uh-huh. encoders and not just Yiffy or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, but because it's, like, a, like, it turns out that it's VHS footage. But I just was like, oh, this looks fucking weird and bad. <laughs> like, did I fuck it up? Because I know this is supposed to be, like, a very, like, you know, meticulous and, like, beautiful movie yeah. in a way. You know what I hadn't thought about before? Is um, because I have you a little bit and Jackson even more so. Like, I have friends that have like readings on this movie. Like you said, you felt like it was about like seeing. You know. Well, I mean, I think there's other stuff going on, but that was a big thing that I feel like I haven't heard from a lot of people. But that when I was watching it, that I latched onto because of. I think some of it is that I just watched a bunch of movies. Oh, totally, totally. This week, and this one was the one that was the most, like, oh, they're just, like, they are building shots. Yes. Uh, and things are very intentionally supposed to be shots, first and foremost, rather than um, about the actors performing or about mm. these other things. It is about, like, here's the shot I have in my head, and we are going to create that shot, rather than, like, you know, Mike Hindicke's the big opposite here. Yeah. Of this is about I'm just gonna put a camera on these two guys and let them fucking go. Well, so um, the thing. This is almost like if this was like a taking what you just said. I was just thinking about this and I'm having trouble phrasing it. But like the woman that uh, Francis Dollarhide works with who is like working at the um, home video place and is blind. Yeah. I'm just like, now, now I'm thinking about what you said and I'm thinking about her and I'm thinking about how, if this was like a seventies thriller movie instead of an eighties movie, how like it's ham fisted in Manhunter, but like imagining the Brian De Palma version of this, yes, it would where be... it would like be like beating you over the head. <laughs> Yeah, she's blind, but But she works at the video place. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, like, I think there's also in this, like, I think a lot of this is specifically about seeing there's, I think, also the 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 specific thing around it of like 
that she isn't able to see. And yeah. so much of the rest of this is about seeing. In a way where I almost thought it was going to be revealed when when uh, Will Graham is like, oh, it's all about seeing for you. I thought it was going to be revealed that he was deaf or something. And that uh-huh. was going to like give them details to find the person. Oh. Um, but... Yeah, that is that is the Brian De Palma version of yes, this movie, though, right? Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, but... I guess all that to say that, like, part of what makes Manhunter such a pleasure is the like sort of like subtlety and craft that like Michael Mann can bring to like very tired thriller things. Yes. Like, I mean, this movie's still a little ham-fisted. But oh, I totally. Feel like, but I feel like, uh, yeah. <laughs> there, there are others who would go much further with it. Yeah. That's but, and so the, the other big thing I was pulling out with this, too, is, like, um, I think in it, especially because of how much the film itself is about you seeing these really meticulously constructed, like, sets and spaces and shots within those where, like, it's... It feels like blocking is very important. It feels like exactly where people are within the frame is important uh-huh. in the way that this is constructed, in the way that in other movies where you are just having people performing, sometimes that falls away a little bit more. It's not quite as important to the individual shots of exactly where someone is in the frame, mm-hmm. you know? Whereas this one, all of that feels intentional. This feels a very like heavily storyboarded movie to me. I don't oh, know that totally. For, for totally. Ch- you know, a fact, but it feels that way. Yeah. Um, and so having it be about like, oh, constructing this whole thing and having it be about seeing and then having the main criminal villain throughout all of it being this guy who's all obsessed with seeing and also with like attaining some sort of godhood is I think in a way, but in a way that is like, again, Brian De Palma would like turn this way up where you'd be like i got it dude whereas this is a thing that i'm kind of just pulling out of this which yeah. is that i think there's like an intentional uh element to this where michael mann is making a film about making being a director and that being a director is about seeing and trying to like become a god of a world mm-hmm. in some way mm-hmm. um but in a way where it's just like for the most part it's just a thrilling you know crime movie but that's just kind of like an underlying yeah. aspect of it. Oh, I, I started to say this a minute it's, ago. Yeah, it's not like a... a um, <clears throat> Kitano film. My brain went to Miike yeah. and I got fucked up. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, a Kitano film where like those ones are about like the director and and like the construction of space. But also in a way that is just like far more about that mm-hmm. rather than a, about being a good crime movie. Yeah, so the, the, and also less about being a god and more about being really fucking impressed. But the thing that I started to say, and we got kind of sidetracked, is just so funny to hear you pull that out of it. You know, I know Jackson has like a lot of stuff that they pulled out, um, like thematically from this movie. When I was texting Molly about this movie briefly, we were just like, "That movie's fucking sick." Like I yeah, just, I've also seen, fucking sick. I just have seen Manhunter like three times. I'm no thoughts head empty about Manhunter. I'm just like that movie rocks. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, all I had to say. All right, next movie. Hit me. There's always a delay between when I. Oh, you did tell you told me about this one too. I forgot. Yes. I've been meaning to get around to this for a long time. It's Throwdown, um, 2004 Johnny Toe movie. I've been keep meaning to get to this and didn't ever get to it so thank you for getting to it yeah um i kind of just vaguely heard about it and so i did not know that it was 2004 and this is a 2004 fucking movie 
Oh, um, sign me up. <laughs> in that, like, it's just like, like I think it's probably digital camera. Sign me using, up, and not not film. <laughs> uh, just like the look of it. Yeah. Um, but uh, there are parts of this movie that I really, really adored. Uh, but there's also parts of it that ended up feeling kind of uneven to me or something. Uh-huh. So the basic plot of it is, um, you know, the first character that you get introduced to, let me pull this up so I can like actually get names while I talk. Cause I watched this, uh, along like on Monday or something. I've watched more. I just typed in throw it out and it's like, there's right so there. many. Okay. Film. Um, so, uh, this is not who brother Bo is not who I'm thinking of. Uh, I think Tony might be. Um, I forget his name. They may have done a different version of the name too. Um, but so there's this guy who uh, is a like judo champion, um, and basically like throughout all the movie is kind of just going around like almost like shonen protagonist. Like I just have to prove that I'm the best judo, so I'm gonna just challenge everybody I ever meet to a judo match. Mm-hmm. Um, like it starts with him, like challenging just like this really big bouncer guy being like, I bet I can like throw you down for, you know, however much money Mm. Uh, and then succeeds. And then there's a big moment later on where he's broken one of his arms and it's like, I bet I can do it with one arm because he's been training how to do it with one arm. Um, he's just the most like, you're right. What I do is I do judo well and I'm, or judo well, and I'm just going to like go through this movie doing that and inspiring people with my ability to do judo well. Mm. Um, I would say the bigger character here, which kind of makes sense with the way that they've listed it to you, but um, is not who you first get introduced to, uh, who is Bo, brother Bo is usually mm-hmm. um, what the, the other guy will call him throughout it. Um, and he uh, is a band leader and karaoke manager um, and was an expert at judo, but uh, gave up and hasn't been doing it. And the other guy wants to challenge him and fight him because he was the like former champion. Um, and there's a part where they do a fight and he like basically just refuses to fight him. I uh, just lets him throw him around. Um, and uh, then there's this other girl, Mona, who is a girl who shows up. Um, she ended up being my favorite character. She's kind of just trying to like, She's the one who, like, has run into money troubles, is, like, trying to, like, basically get money where she can fix her life, but also is, like, kind of constantly living this dream of, like, well, I'm going to go to, like, this country, and then there they will like my body type, and they will like my singing and stuff, and then uh-huh. I can make a, become a big, like, idol star there. Um, and in the meantime, I just got to get money to get out of here, and so I'm going to run a bunch of grifts. So my favorite part of this movie is the three of them just running around doing fun griffs in like arcades and shit. It's oh, fucking great. Right. You were telling me that this was like, what if like Rebels of the Neon God had a bunch of fight sequences? Yeah. And also like more like plot and people talking and not people just sitting looking sad uh-huh. in an arcade. Uh, yeah. What if there was a lot of people just sitting around looking sad? Yeah. This is no Rebels of the Neon God to me. <laughs> um, but it was still fun, and there's some there's some like great uh, scenes of them like running grifts. There's a part where they all kind of uh, the people that they've been like grifting or dodging or whatever all confront them at the same time at this bar, 
and then um, Bo and Mona uh, both independently run into the bathroom to like try and hide out, and then they uh, they both go into the same stall. So I think like Mona goes in first, and then Bo goes mm. in. Uh, and then they're just in there smoking and there's like this moment of them just like kind of chatting being like oh this sucks and then the people come in looking for them uh, but they don't know that they're like you know running these grifts together and so the guy who's coming in looking for Mona will come and go to look under the stall and then they've switched so that like Bo is sitting on there being like oh someone's in here and then like the person who's trying to find like <laughs> Bo will come in and then they'll switch and she's like oh like pervert you know those kind of yeah yeah it's just like fun like some of that stuff is my favorite yeah just having like and she just like keeps stealing everywhere that they go and so the big stairwell scene in this is so there's one where you first get introduced to her and she's getting kicked out of her uh, apartment by her landlady and there's this like big set of stairs going up and down from where she is um just like in the street basically um and that's a that's a good shot um I say I did A plus for Manhunter, by the way. And then you A did. Minus you did. We were, we were talking about. Um, but then the reason why I gave it an S is there's this big moment where um, they're at this like gambling place and they've just got all the money that people are throwing into the pot. And she just scoops it all up in her arms and just starts running. And she's just like running down the street and like running downstairs and the money is just trailing behind her. Um, and you know, the, a bunch of people go chasing after her, um, brother Bo's with her and is like also running. Um, and then, uh, there's a part where, um, he like, is like, go on, you know, I'll, I'll take care of them, but also still doesn't want to do the judo. And so he just gets beaten up and then it's just like limping and has lost his shoe. And then she's still got all the money they're trying to pick up all the money that's fallen on the floor and she just runs out into the middle of them in the street, picking up money to grab the shoe and runs back. It's just this great sequence of like, one is just like pretty incredible and, uh, fun. And also very thematic to just like what these people's lives are, which is they're just like constantly running and just trying to get money. And, mm-hmm. um, but then there's this part where, so I loved all of that. And then the movie just becomes about how brother Bo needs to be a judo champion again. And then it just becomes like this training montage and him just like, uh, getting back into the spirit of judo. And it just becomes like a sports movie. I'm going to like, like, and extremely in a like extended montage of just like, here's my match against this guy. Here's my match against this guy. And then it just kind of ends with being like, Oh, he got back into judo. And that's like what the, whole movie was about and i was like i feel like the movie was about like money and like whatever was going on with mona and like all of that and then sunlight just became like no judo the 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 sport the spirit of judo (laughs) and it just ends with like a a tribute to uh kurosawa for doing the sugata senshiro movies who's like the big judo champion ah um I was just like, that was so weird because I was loving this movie up until that point. <laughs> so, um, but I gave it an S because it was some great fucking series. I was thinking about an A plus. I was like, I'm gonna do an S for this one. Yeah. Sometimes I'll, I'm a little nervous about doing an S. Yeah. Maybe I'll watch it together. Um, and then one final film. This one isn't is not a crime film. Um, I'm also gonna pull up the article for this one because this this is like by far the most complex one. 
you know that I watched this one. I, I mentioned this one to you. Um, which is Eros and Massacre. Oh, right. Which is a Yoshida Kiju film. Um, so I got that, like, collection of three of his films. I watched the theatrical version, not the even longer, because theatrical version's, like, still two and a half hours. Uh-huh. Uh, the even longer director's cut, which is, like, three and a half or something. Um, I might watch the, the full director's one at some point. Um, but this is just extremely, like, I like Teriyama films kind of bullshit, you know? <laughs> um, so it's this kind of, like, experimental art film, um, shot in black and white. There's some really gorgeous shots in black and white in this film. Um, oh, a thing I was going to mention with Manhunter. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to skip back real quick. There's the big final confrontation with, like, Will Graham and the um, uh, Red Dragon guy and everything and, like, the police coming in and all that. And the editing starts, like, cutting up a lot of the action in a way that made me think of Kurosawa. Because hmm. um, Kurosawa, especially with guns, he did this the most, but also sometimes with, like, sword things. But with guns in particular, he thought guns were so impactful. Um, and so what he would do is, if someone, like, pulls the trigger, he will cut right after the gun goes off uh-huh. and then cut again to the gun going off and you'll actually get the hit twice you'll get mm. the shot twice you would also do it with mm. other hits to do impact but he did it with guns a lot and they do it a bunch in manhunter manhunter at the end huh where um you'll get like the shot and then cut to and sometimes it's literally just they they shot like you normally would a sequence all in like you know it's not like cut to a different angle or anything. It literally just skips the film back to show you the the gunshot again, hmm. um, which I thought was great. But anyway, Eros and Massacre. Um, so the director, also known as Yoshida uh, Yoshishige, um, that's what Wikipedia says. The collection I have says his the other name he went by. Um, but I think I think um, Yoshishige was his like legal name, and then. Kiju is like his I don't know. Pen I haven't name. fully figured out. Yeah. Um Bonsoir Ikuhara. Yeah. Uh so anyway, he th- this is just like I'm I'm trying to think of the best way to explain the plot of this film. So there's this girl who uh, her name is is Aiko. She is a student. And she's trying to figure out about the life of uh, Ito Noe, who was the wife of anarchist uh, Osuge uh, Sakai, who was um, assassinated um, in 1923 and like was this big anarchist at the time. Um, and so it starts with her interviewing the daughter of Osuge, uh, or no, the daughter of... Um, Ito, I don't know if it's was her. I assume not. Mm-hmm. Um, just given how things went, um, and it's like kind of jumping back and forth through time, where you're getting the present, where she's looking into it. You're getting scenes from the past that are like from the later uh, life of Osuge. I mean, he's still fairly young because he was assassinated, but um, and then she the. Eiko is being investigated for, like, 
possibly being involved in like a prostitution ring by the police is giving these like very evasive, like kind of jokey answers where um, she's really playing up that they like want stuff like want answers. And so she'll like keep being like uh, basically like start pressing them for what do they want her to say? And then she'll just say it, but in a way where like in court, that might be hard to prove because mm-hmm. now it just seems like you're like, leading on a witness or something or you know right um but anyway um and she is going around with this uh student who i think is a filmmaker and they're like making films together uh but he also plays with fire a lot and talks about like i can set you on fire and things um and they're talking a lot about like modern at the what time this film was made um which was i think 69 um nice yeah a lot of modern like politics that were happening that something like throw away your books is also dealing with um while also then going back to stuff that's happening with the the anarchist and then also like um ito doing this like kind of women's liberation work as well um and then as it goes on the 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 time frames start like the time starts to get weirdly blended um so like i don't think there's a really big stairwell scene but i still gave it a b because there's this really fabulous shot of like a a spiral staircase just like going up outside of a building in tokyo that she's on but then like also moving around in tokyo like uh ito shows up in modern tokyo um they start like basically crossing like they go back in time and are like uh interviewing people who are historical figures who were like dead in the, you know, in the past. Um, the film ends with them like going and taking a photograph of like Ito and Osage and like all these people, like basically all the actors who played the like past characters takes a photograph of them, but it was like as if they were taking a photo of the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's this kind of film where like, Part of it is, I was like, I just want to watch the shorter one first, because the other two movies in the trilogy are kind of, um, they're shorter than this one. Yeah. Uh, and, like, I wasn't exactly sure how much I was going to buy with it. I bought the thing just as, like, this seems like some bullshit I would like. <laughs> and I'm just going to, like, do it just to, like, make myself watch these films. Basically. I impulsively bought The Mad Fox, and that worked out well. Yes. Yeah, that vibe. Um... And it's one where uh, it was less immediately arresting to me as like when I watched Terry on and I was just like, holy fuck, this this man knows how to make like weird art films in a way that's like extremely compelling. Um, This one feels a little bit like shaggier in a way. Um, In a way where like throwing your books is like huge and ambitious in the same way that this is and yet just work like everything just feels more like it it's doing something that's really pushing because mm. this was a little bit more uneven but also um there's a part of me that's like i just want to rewatch this because so much of it is dealing with politics across time in a way that uh in the moment as hard to keep who, track of uh is, is somewhat familiar with this but is not like a radical in japan in the 60s who's just <laughs> deep into this um so I was like, yeah, maybe I'll, I will watch the director's cut and then I will watch the other two films. Uh, but I did enjoy it a lot. 
Um, but also it's just extremely like if you want this kind of film, um, go watch like Throw Away Your Books, Rally in the Streets first. I would say. This movie is not on the Arrow streaming service, but it is distributed by Arrow. And that reminded me of something that I just wanted to throw to the audience. Um, if anybody has the Arrow streaming service and has stuff that they think we would like, feel free to get in the Discord um, and like tell us that. Um, you can actually now go to... And I don't know how much... I asked Em and Jackson if I should like be saying this, and they didn't respond. So... <laughs> You can go to exportodd.io slash discord, um, and that'll take you to the discord link for um, the abnormal mapping discord. We have an export chat there, um, which is like the easiest way to get at us, I feel like. If you have like stuff on the Arrow streaming service that you're into, um, feel free, because the last couple times I opened it up, I felt sort of like... There were a couple times right when we got it that I opened it up and I was like, oh, I'm just going to jump into like whatever. The last couple times I opened it up, I just felt like sort of like, oh, there's so many things and I don't know what any of them are. I feel paralyzed by too many choices. I'm going to go back to Criterion because I'll just go watch my art movies that I know I like. Yeah. Particu- th- this movie. I, I think part of the thing too with Arrow is like, I mean, I still had fun watching Turkey Shoot, but like Turkey Shoot's not always the biggest thing that I want to watch. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's the other thing is that like this is like this follows under the category of art movie Autumn would probably like. Mm-hmm. I want someone to like recommend to me like tell me to go watch Slumber Party Massacre 4 or whatever. Yeah. You know, someone tell me just like something sleazy to watch on Arrow just to sort of like push me but out. But of... like you really like. Yeah. Yeah, I just need to. I, like, I think that's one of the things is some of the stuff I would have fun with. It's just like a weird schlocky movie, but also sometimes there's a part of me that's like, man, I just want someone to be like, here's a few to watch before I just start fully doing random ones on Arrow. Yeah. So. Um. Um. The last the last time I really had fun using Arrow, I think I just like navigated to Japanese movies and just hit play on whatever. I think that's how I ended yeah. up watching Wolf Guy. Man, Wolf Guy. Well, the other wolf thing, guy. With, the other thing for me with Arrow is um, when I'm at work, I often can't watch foreign language stuff mm-hmm. unless I can sometimes do Icelandic because I know a little bit and I I can uh, go. Or if it's once where there's like a, a lot of it's in English, but some of it's also in another language, sometimes I can do that. Um, occasionally German, I can do this with, but like I can't with Japanese. I can't with a lot of stuff that's going to be on Arrow that's going to appeal to me. Um, and so that's time that I have to be like, oh, tonight I'm going to watch a movie with my night. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it comes to that, I'm like, well, okay, I still haven't gone through like these uh, Suzuki Seijun movies that I haven't watched. I still haven't gone right. through like this collection of the Love and Anarchy from Arrow that I haven't right, watched. Yeah. And so I have like, when I am sitting down to watch a movie at night, there's like movies I want to watch. Whereas the most like, I'm just looking for some shit to put on while I'm like working for that. I've ended up uh, falling more towards criterion because one, there's like a lot of uh, English language stuff on there as well. But sometimes I, I feel a little bit more confident of like, yeah, I'm going to like this yeah. like arty criterion movie. Whereas sometimes it's just like I put on Turkey shoe cause it was just English and I searched for lesbian and I was disappointed in the lack of lesbian content. So. <laughs> uh. <laughs> 
And so, yeah, um, I think I just, you know, I just, I have my little hole. I, I, I fit there. I like it. Yeah. I also, you know, we have arrow. We might as well use it. I want to like, you know, push myself out of my comfort zone. So if you have just like some really sleazy trash movie that you like, feel free to hit me up. Otherwise, the next thing I know I want to watch that's on Arrow is Gamera 2. Because uh, yeah. Gamera 1 fucking rocks. One thing I've done sometimes on Arrow, um, I didn't do this with Come Drink With Me, but I did it with another movie at some point. They have dubs of a lot of the mm-hmm. like Hong Kong movies, like the Shawscope stuff. They have the dubs on there as well. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I don't mind done... with like Hong Kong movies or Italian movies because they don't record the audio on set anyway. So like, who fucking cares? Yeah. I usually prefer the Italian's a little bit different just because of yeah. how much, but like there's more overlap between like people who speak Italian and people who speak I, English. Well, mm. I wonder if you watch the dub of come drink with me. What do they do for the songs? Mm. I would fucking hate it. If that was in English, that would be so bad. The songs <laughs> that they sing. Because they're really fun, but, like, they are, like, very traditional Chinese songs. And and also, like, uh, Chinese and Japanese are both languages that are just, like, the rhythms of the language are just vastly different than a lot of, like, yeah. Western languages. Yeah. Where I feel like sometimes you can put English lyrics to a song that was originally in Spanish or in Italian or something. Right. And it and, might sound a little clunky, but not, you but know. But it's still going to, like... There's there's similar enough rhythms there that you can make it work, but like any time that there's like an anime theme song and they do an English version, it always sounds stupid, and it's because the melody was written for Japanese, mm. and Japanese just works differently than English, like fundamentally in the way that like yeah. the rhythms of the language exist. And the same with Chinese songs too. Yeah, um, it's kind of amazing that that Chinese cover of um, uh the dreams dreams for so all good. we know though for all we know it may just like... sound really stupid in Chinese, <laughs> you know? for all we know there are people who are sitting in the theater in hong kong being like this sounds like garbage why have they played this eight times <laughs> why don't they just play the english one i mean we don't really know what it is saying but it's still i'm an english speaker i don't really know what that song's about either <laughs> yeah i don't really know what the lyrics to dreams are um, uh, 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 uh. Yeah, I mean the that big one is uh, that I always think of as zombie because I I know more of that song just yeah. like what the because I think dreams is a little bit more of a fluff song yeah but zombie is always funny because you always see the the Halloween mix that someone's put together with zombie and I'm like mm, it's not that kind of zombie this is about the the troubles in Ireland and the massacre of people. Um, <laughs> Maybe don't have it follow up Monster Mash. <laughs> anyway, um, Sunday, bloody Sunday. God. Um. So yeah, I gave a beat of the series. Let's talk about the main movie, Paris. Oh my God, we're two hours. <laughs> we're making up for last time. Texas. We could not have done this two hours last night. No, we we had briefly we watched the movie last night. We had talked about. Do we want to like try to record segment one tonight and then like just talk about Paris, Texas tomorrow? And we're like, ah, eh, no. 
Um, and my reasoning was less to do with the fact that you'd watched a million movies and more like, I'm just kind of tired and like, I'll just want to get through it really quick. Whereas tonight, because all we're doing is recording, I really just let that segment breathe. I did. Well, if we had done that last night, I would have been like, chop, chop, motherfucker. Speed this the fuck up. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now it's almost 11, but like we got. We got an hour fifteen before midnight to wrap yeah. wrap up this talk about parasites. I work at eight one of the, tomorrow morning. One of the fun. best fucking movies ever made. Yeah, it's one of the best fucking movies ever made. I love being right about things. <laughs> <laughs> this movie was incredible. Yeah. Um. So, Paris, Texas, directed uh, by Vim Vendors, released in nineteen eighty four, um, starring Harry Dean Stanton, Dean Stockwell, um, and. Other people who are less well-known, and so I've forgotten their names. I'm sorry. Did you see that uh, movie poster for the boy with the green hair or whatever? Yes. Did you know that the boy is Dean Stockwell? I I saw this, yes. I saw saw it when Minofsky... I was like, what? (laughs) I saw it when Minofsky retweeted it um, and just said, I do not know why little boy Dean Stockwell has green hair. No one tell me. (laughs) Anyway... (laughs) Um, so, um, Harry Dean Stanton, um, is the father of a kid named Hunter. Um, both Harry Dean Stanton and his wife, um, I forget the actress's name, um, but her name, her character's name is Jane. His character's name is Travis. Um, they were... They were parents to this kid named Hunter. Um, you you were laughing because I went to Wikipedia and typed in Paris, Texas, and it gave me the actual location. Yes. <laughs> um. So they were this kid's parents. Um, they suddenly disappeared four years ago without warning, uh, and Hunter ended up in the care of um, Dean Stockwell and, and his wife's character, um, Walt and Anne. Um, and all of a sudden, um, they get a call from somewhere in the middle of nowhere, Texas, um, and we're a very German doctor. Uh, Can I tell you the trivia fact that I know about this? Yeah, you know lots of trivia facts. I know lots of little trivia facts about this movie because I, uh, have a favorite movie. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so apparently, because, so there's the German doctor. Um, Anne, the sort of foster mother to Hunter, is French for no apparent reason. Um, and other than I guess Paris. Um, I don't know how much you could tell, but um, uh, Jane, played by Natasha Kinski. N- yes, Natasha Kinski. Um, Kinski, not a uh, sort of like traditionally Texan name. She is a German actress as well. Yeah. Um. This movie was, like, financed by, like, a French company, basically. And there were, like, rules and regulations of, like, if you were going to have this film financed by by this, you know, French company, you have to have European actors in it. And so, or, or, or like, six out of, 60% of the actors have to be European. And so there are many characters showing up in this movie that are just inexplicably European. <laughs> yeah. Um, Natasha Kikinski, um, 
had to learn her accent for for this role. Basically, yeah. she does um, a pretty good job. She does a pretty admirable job. It's I say only this on not this, being southern. Uh, it's only on this third. Um, as someone like literally married to someone who comes from this part of Texas, it's only on this third time watching the movie that I could pick up on like when her accent like yeah. doesn't come through. Uh, she does a really good job. Mine anyway. comes from being German, and I'm like, well, that isn't that German, so <laughs> it's not my Oma German. So, um... Trevor Tra- once describes anything as sharp. Travis turns up at this, like, random little doctor's office in, in middle of nowhere, Texas, and um, <clears throat> Walt, like, flies out to go get him, and they drive... They laboriously drive across the Mojave Desert back to L.A., um because travis refuses to fly um they drive across the mojave desert back to la um and travis Travis. slowly starts speaking again and eating food and at the beginning of the movie he's like more or less catatonic he's like not speaking not eating all these sorts of things just kind of like it's like here go take a shower and he just turns on the shower and then walks out of the hotel and just starts like wandering off again it's like unclear to me in that moment like is he trying to escape or is he like no like he's like i'm just gonna start walking again you know like yeah so he's um he he go they end up back in la and um him and hunter reunited and it is a sort of like difficult reunion you know, um, Travis is having a lot of trouble speaking still, and Hunter is, like, eight, seven years old, and, like... Almost eight. Not really, like, emotionally equipped to, like, deal with, like, okay, so I have my dad, but I also have this other guy who is my dad's brother, who is my real dad. And who I, like, vaguely remember, but not really, because I was three when I last saw him. Yeah. Um, um, and now, like, half... of Honestly, over half of my life. Yes. I have spent... Half a boy's life. Yeah. I love that line reading. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then also just, like, the weirdness of, like, oh, here's this guy who's, like, clearly... Especially from, like, a little kid's perspective, like, he's not behaving normally, and as a little kid, I don't have the, like... I don't have, like, the mental faculty to, like, be, like, oh, he yeah. went through a lot. I'm I'm understanding of what's going on. It's just like here's this weird guy who's coming to pick me up at school. I'm just gonna like tell my friend, oh, I need a ride home today. Yeah, but also like I think once he realizes it, does a really admirable job for like. Well, I guess I have to be the mature one of us too. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, about as good a job as you could ask a seven year old to do. Yeah. Um, and so... This little kid actor is pretty good. Yeah. I, to- I told you... Yes. You looked up. <laughs> he he now directs uh, weirdo Christian movies. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, to clarify, he is good in this movie as an actor. Yes. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, so... Anne reveals to Travis that she secretly has had some contact with Anne. Not a great deal, but a little bit. Is this already past where they had written the script when they started? Yes. So the other thing, um, they had inten- this whole movie is shot in sequence, other than a couple little fill-in things. 
Um, I think that comes through in the movie. I like literally the first time I was watching it, I was like, I think they probably shot this in sequence. Yeah. Like it, there's just, I don't know. I think it came through to me. Um, they had intended to have a full script, but um, they sort of like got to you're writing them in LA and sort of like didn't quite know where to go next. Um, and Kit Carson, the writer um, had to go do another project. Um, and so basically they get to the LA scenes. They sort of like improvise their way through that. And there's like a week long break in shooting where vendors finishes writing the film, sends his draft over to Kit Carson who like touches things up and sends it back and they shoot the rest of the movie. Yeah. Um, um, one of the other things, I don't think this is fully like how it was produced, but I think when we get to like talking more about this film, one of the things that struck me is just how much like, if you tell someone the setup of this movie, there are things that you expect it to be. There are scenes in here that are like, would be handled just very differently with like kind of your normal movie. Yeah. Your normal director. And, um, this like flies in the face of like normal logic for a lot of like how you should uh, write the script and how you should handle these things, but also become stronger for it. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the, like we can continue on with the synopsis, but like at this moment with a lot of films that would have the starting premise, what you would expect is, okay, now the film is going to be about figuring out what situation Trav got himself into that we need to get him out with the mob or whatever where he yeah. had to go into hiding and like lost himself and then reunites with them, the mom and the son and like, yeah. you get a happy ending as they like clear up whatever's with the mom. That's like the, mm -hmm. this is the start of so many crime movies that are like this. Totally. Totally. You know, I mean, it's longer and more boring than they would be. They would, yes. they would speed through the part where he's lost in the desert and they find him and they're like, you've been missing for four years. This is what literally... did you get into? And then he'd like slowly reveal like, oh, you know, mobsters or whatever. Like this is literally like, I think like Breaking Bad Walt ha goes through a catatonic episode at the end of season one or something and like literally does this, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, And this is so much stronger for not being about, oh, he fell in into trouble with the mob and uh, mm. whatever. And we need to get him out of whatever trouble he's in. And instead just being about like, no, sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, you're like, life just goes to shambles and like a, not a, I've dealt with the mob way, but just to know, like, man, I've just fucked up with like my family. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Anne, the French foster mother is like, yeah, I've had some contact with Jane. Um, and I know that she, on the fifth of every month, she wires money to Hunter and she goes to this bank. Um, and it's the first of the month when she tells Travis about this. So Travis gets everything in order. And like that very next morning, him and Hunter leave and travel back across the Mojave Desert to go to yeah. um, Houston. Um, <clears throat> and um, they... In a very there, there weirdly are, tense scene. Yeah. There well also there are like um I think intentional moments too where like not that Hunter's like fully able to make the like he Travis still being kind of irresponsible bringing Hunter along and yes. stuff. Yes. Um but also there is it it is like clearly not just like a full like kidnapping situation thing that could be happening here where it's like 
oh, I'm going to go drop you off. I'm going to do this. And he's like, what? No, I want to come with you. And like, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm being, I definitely think we'll do that. Like there's a world in which I don't know about legally, but like, like there is a world in which like, you know, um, uh, Walt and Anne are like way more like mad about this. And I think they have a sort of understanding, like we do not approve of this. But there's not a lot we can do, and we understand why Travis feels that he needs to, like, do this. You know? Yeah. Why he needs Hunter with him. Or why he invited Hunter. Because he very easily could have said, no, you are not coming with me. You know? Yeah. Um. So, they travel back, and they find her at this bank. Um. They fall asleep while, like, looking for her. And I got so tense <laughs> the first time um... I saw it. <laughs> I also just like having a a, a child uh, who anytime we're going to go out to the playground for like a half hour, it's like, got to get your sunscreen on. Uh-huh. This kid just falling asleep on a concrete slab in the middle of fucking summer in Texas. I'm just like, <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> you better slap sunscreen on that kid before he got out, Trap. <laughs> No, he didn't. You know yeah, he didn't. I know he didn't. Like, it's gonna have such a sunburn. That's why he's in the hotel room at the end. He's just yeah. like, I have a sunburn and it fucking hurts. I'm not sitting in the car anymore. So, they find her and they follow her back to her job. She works at a um, strip club um, a little ways outside of Houston. And um, Travis goes in and they the strip club has these booths with like one way mirrors, and so the the women working at the club basically just see a mirror, and they're in these like sort of like little sets, you know, like oh we're in a nurse's office or whatever, um, and the the men um just talk to them through phones basically, um and uh <clears throat> you know they can see the women, but they the women can't see them. So he goes and has a conversation or or attempts to have a conversation with her, um, isn't really able to get it out. And what he decides to do is he records a tape for Hunter and he's like, I want to be your father, but like, you know, things, I I can't do that. Um, but I am going to try and reunite you with your mother. And so he goes and he has another conversation with her. And they sort of get the whole backstory of, you know, Jane went through some really intense, like, postpartum depression and resented Travis, resented Hunter. Um, Some of this postpartum depression is filled by, like, Travis not being a very good husband, you know? Like, it starts out small things where he's, like, jealous and... and, um, can hold down a job and sort of escalates to he is like physically um abusive with her until one day like she burned down she burns down the trailer uh after a sort of incident of him physically abusing her she gets hunter and she burns down the trailer with him in it um and you know that is the moment he wakes up and yeah beds on fire or whatever and runs out through the flames and goes out into the desert yeah 
Um, and then, yeah, she goes and drops off Hunter with Walt and Anne, and, you know, just, she disappears, and Travis disappears until, you know, the start of the movie, basically. Um, and, you know, Travis is, like, <clears throat> very, like, just tries to express to her, like, I'm very sorry about all that, and also I can't make it better, you know, I don't think we can, like, after the things that happened, I don't think that, like, it is wise for us to try and, like, start just a nice, normal nuclear family, yeah. you know, but he he is like, Hunter is at this hotel room, and, you know, I'll leave you a key, and you can go pick him up, and so her and Hunter are reunited, and he just starts driving out down the road again, and, you know, we don't know, like, is Jane gonna be like, I will go, you know... You have two other parents. I will try to live near them now. Or, you know, we don't know, like, what's going to happen next. Um, but uh, who cares? Because it's the best fucking movie ever made. <laughs> yeah. It, it's better because you don't know what's going to happen next. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the other thing, and I said this while we were watching it, which mm -hmm. is that uh, the conventional script writing, like, I made the joke when we were watching it of, like, oh, haven't they ever heard Show Don't Tell? <laughs> um, but like the conventional script writing thing, the conventional way to make movies, the thing that you are told is the proper way to make movies that is good. And it's the, the better compelling way to do the movie is he would start telling the story and you would get, uh, flashbacks, you get cutaways yeah. and we'd see the scenes of what's happening and maybe we get him narrating over some of it, but we would see it all. We'd see yeah. it all play out. This movie understands that seeing it happen is not what fucking matters. Well, and it's Seeing also not real. People. Yeah. It's a film construct. The thing that is actually happening in that moment is these two people having a conversation. Yeah. It doesn't matter what really happened. And by by going back and showing footage of what happened that asserts a certain reality, whereas so much of this is about they both tell their stories. Mm -hmm. um, and both of those stories feel to be seem to be mostly true, but also there's like a certain amount in them telling the stories that is like, how much did she know what was going through his head that he's explaining? It? Mm -hmm. You know, is this the first time that she's hearing about how like he understands what happened? Yeah. Um, you don't get the, the impression that like these are two people who are really good at being like candid and honest with each other before this, yeah. you know, you know that she has told him about like, Oh, I have dreams where I'm trying to escape. So, like, you know that that's how she is feeling, that she has expressed that to him in the past. But, like, you know, I don't know how much he tells her. Probably not much, you yeah. know? Um, but, yeah, and it, it just understands that what is going to be most, like, uh, actually meaningful and impactful and is what is actually important to the story is to just actually see these two human beings who neither of them can see each other. Mm -hmm. throughout most of it because he turns his chair around so he's facing away from the one-way mirror yeah he can and hardly bear to look at her it. both as the character and also literally while they are making this mm -hmm. movie it is a one-way mirror yes she cannot see him yeah so like both the characters and the actors cannot see each other but just having to do the stories and the other character has to react mm -hmm. um and has to like have the emotions of hearing the story like um, like so <clears throat> the whole movie's great the whole movie, yeah. from start to finish, is just, like, candy to me. Like, just yeah. like you get... But like also, the, until we got to that scene, I was like, this is a good movie. Yeah. Is this one of my favorite movies? No. The, I would forget about this movie in, like, a year. 
not like fully forget about it, but like, I'd be like, oh yeah, that was a good movie, but I'm not going to like think about it. But that's, that the, scene is what I'm just The like, whole movie like builds to that scene and what they understand is that like, you know, like another dumb trivia fact that I learned from watching the commentary track, but also I think is just like very evident in the thing is like, they just shot the scene three times. They just set up the camera like over here. And they shot the damn scene. Like, the actors just acted. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, Much in the same way of, like, Mikey and Nikki. Like, we're just going to have the cameras roll yeah. for, like, 20 minutes. You know? This one feels less, like, intentionally towards just improv where they're just riffing off of each other. Yeah. It is more of, like, here's the stories that you tell. Yes. There's probably some amount of variation because even if you know your lines really well, you probably don't do the exact same. Yeah. Everything. Uh, but they're still also just like, I mean, all movies, even the most constructed movie, even Manhunter still has the, like, as much as people want to assert auteur mm-hmm. theory stuff with, with movies and it can work to varying degrees. And like Kurosawa is one where you see it a lot, but also still every single person in that movie who's acting is making choices that Kurosawa can perhaps exert control over. But, mm-hmm. you know, randomness always creeps in the films. Yeah. This is the thing that we, I'm sure we'll talk about a lot with Lynch, because I think Lynch is someone uh, who really extremely, this is also one of my favorite things in Noi Albanoi, mm. um, one of my favorite, like, Icelandic films. The There's this whole scene with, the like, a fly cr- crawling on his hands, and it's literally, literally there was just a fly in the room, and they landed on his hand, and they just shot video of it. Yeah. Um, and sometimes movies are just understanding that, like, well, some shit just happened, but now it's it's on it. It's on yeah. the film. It's in the movie. Um, and yeah, so for this conversation, like, they just set up the camera over on this side of the glass and they shoot it, the whole final sequence, like, they just shoot it. And then they set it up on the other side of the glass and then they get, like, a little bit of coverage. But they just do, like, just, like, two, three takes of this and it's, like, it it is, like, you know, this is an easy comparison, but I, like, it is, like, theater. And it is just, like, Vendors like placing a tremendous amount of faith in like, like, no matter what the movie was before this scene, now the entire everything is going to hinge on these two actors and I'm just going to trust like I, you know, we auditioned them and we hired them and we got got them through this whole filming process. We are just going to trust them to do the scene and they do it. And it's fucking incredible. <laughs> yeah. Um, afterwards, we were talking. I I think this is the first Sterols movie where we were both, like, crying at just the end. Just bawling. Some of it is that we just don't watch movies that are sad in this way. Yes. But we, like, I was... This is my third time watching the movie. I was a wreck. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know what's funny is... <clears throat> um, the... The first time I watched this movie, I was a wreck during the scene um, where she talks about, you know, after after everything that happened, like I, I would talk to you, Travis. I would like talk to my imagination of you and you would talk back and blah, blah, blah. You know? Yeah. Um, That was what got me the first time. This third time, and I think it's because I was watching this with you. The thing that really got me is when she's reunited with the kid. Because oh, I, 
<laughs> I was just I mean, <laughs> the, the the thing like already got me, but then uh-huh. the reuniting with the kid, I was just like full mom feelings like Yeah. Um in in a weird way where it's like just when it is your kid uh-huh. and they put those little arms around you in a hug, it is like a there's no other hug like that hug. <laughs> and the little kid hugs her and I'm just like, I know that fucking hug. I know that hug. <laughs> There's no, like, a, a normal hug from another adult is different than that. I think I was just, like, I, I was just, like, like... there's just, like, such a frailty to, like, a child uh-huh. hugging you. I, and I think I was just, like, picking up, like, the yeah. mom feelings <laughs> radiating off of you that that hug just, like, really fucking yes. got me. <laughs> um, there was something when, like, a small child body that is a, a child that, like, you are responsible for hugs you, where you are just like instantly so intensely aware of like how small and fragile this like little human being is that you have mm-hmm. to take care of and like keep safe this is just like always slightly overwhelming but also feels good but also when you just watch the like <laughs> mirror scene you're just like oh fuck <laughs> I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just sobbing now so it's so good yeah it's just my favorite fucking movie this is a really good movie also th- this time I was watching it and thinking about um how remarkably similar this ending is to um Bruno Gans approaching the woman in the bar and then just like the intense close up on her and she just delivers this yes. like poetic monologue. I'm talking about Wings of Desire. I did not clarify that. Like I I was just really like in this moment like noticing how similar the endings of this and Wings of Desire are. Yeah. Um, and that there's just like a it understands the power of just having someone like uninterrupted monologue. Yes. And like, and yeah, like vendors is just like great at casting, you know, just like has an eye for like, this person is going to be good in this role sort of thing. Yeah. Um, Bruno Gantz is fucking good. Imagine if Bruno Gantz was in this movie, you know, the guy shouting on the freeway, yeah. What if that was Bruno Gans? That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know if I... I think... I'm pretty sure I've said this on Ghost Divers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if I've said this on here. Um, like, when they decided to make uh, in a like Hollywood Ghost in the Shell movie, and they did not cast Bato, uh to be played by Bruno Gantz, they already fucked up. <laughs> like, if there's, like, one man in my dream casting of Ghost in the Shell for When Bato, did he pass? I I believe he has passed. Or at the very least, he's retired from acting. Yeah. Um, he's getting up there if he hasn't. Um, 2019. So he could have been in the... I mean, probably not at that point. He was probably he's probably old. retired, but, you know. He could not be Bato. Because really what I want for Bato is like Wings of Desire age Bruno Gantz with like a little like ponytail in a way that would just like in the same way that for Bato it works even though it shouldn't. You should watch The American Friend. Like that little rat tail should not work. Yeah. But it works for Bato in the same way that it would totally work for younger Bruno Gantz. You should watch The American Friend. Watching the American. I kept thinking about doing it because, but I know it's like a mix of English, German, and French. 
Yeah, it's like, and one I of don't those... know what the mix level is at, and if it's like mostly English, it's okay. one. So it's one of those European movies where like people are just gonna speak the language that they speak. <laughs> you know, yeah. like when two German characters are speaking to each other, it's gonna be like in German. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, my memory, and it's been two, three years since I've seen this now, but um. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I my memory is that it is mostly in English. Um, do you know what one of the funniest versions of this is? Hmm. So, um, at some point we should watch uh Hunger, the movie that's based on the book by um Humson. But so there's this like huge uh like one of the like biggest authors. Mm-hmm. Um. In uh, I wanted to pull up the I wanted this, but I I want to pull up the thing. Um, but so Knut Hamsen, um, and he's like one of the hugest Norwegian actors, um, authors or authors, um, like wrote some truly uh highly praised works, and so then they made this movie about him. Um, and, uh, Norwegian, Swedish, and Danish are, are kind of mutually intelligible. Mm. Um, it's like intense levels of dialect. Like it's, it's levels of dialect where like sometimes people watch movies from like the UK and are like, I feel like I need subtitles because like British accent is just so thick. Yeah. Like, you know, with Americans and things. Like, yeah. it's it's at that where, like, especially Norwegian is, like, um, just feels really mumbly to a lot of other, like, the other speakers. You ever seen the anyway, movie A Field in England? Um, I don't think so. So that is, a, like, a beloved movie that I remember one time trying to watch A Field in England when I was not at all in a headspace to, like, watch subtitled movies, you know? Yeah. Um, because I, I so I put it on because I was like, oh, I have like eight art movies I'm wanting to watch, and this is the one that's in English, so I'll put this on. And the the English accents in a field in England were so intense that I could not follow the dialogue <laughs> without subtitles on, and I was like, I could not tell what they were fucking saying. <laughs> um. Anyway, so in the movie, Hamsun, uh-huh. uh, from the '90s, about this Norwegian author. Um, they cast a a Swedish French mm-hmm. actor mm-hmm. to play the Norwegian guy. I'm familiar with Max von Sydow. Yeah, Max von Sydow. <laughs> I um, didn't realize he was French. And so this is the funny part: is that everybody in the movie just speaks their language because uh-huh. it's it's mostly mutually intelligible. Like even the uh, actors who speak German are like intentionally German characters, so it makes sense that they're speaking German. But also, like, there's it's harder, but there's some. It's uh-huh. it's closer than like German to English mm-hmm. in many cases, um, not fully, but mm-hmm. it's not mutually intelligible in the same way. But anyway, everyone just speaks their language, <laughs> um, and so it became like a a minor incident that they got this uh, Swedish guy speaking Swedish to play like the you know most beloved Norwegian author, <laughs> like known for like. 
you know, writing really important works in the Norwegian language. <laughs> this is a complete, I'm like, we're so off of parasexes now. But I like, I just always think about it whenever I think of these movies, these European movies, whether they just have like the actors basically speak their language. Uh-huh. Um, Cause it's just so funny that they like, I like, it makes sense as a casting, but it's just very funny to have him speaking Swedish when he's literally like, one of the biggest Norwegian authors known for like doing, you know, inventive things with the Norwegian language specifically. <laughs> um, other Paris, Texas stuff. Um, the, um, so I bought the criterion Blu-ray of this and that's how yes. we watched it this time. And right before we watched the movie, I remember saying to you, I was like, you know, the first time I watched it on streaming, and I'm sure I'll notice, like, a little bit of a difference, like, um, with the disc, but I'm sure it won't be that big. Man, that is a bigger difference than I thought it was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's it's weird in that, like, I don't know, it, it's this thing where, like, I definitely noticed it because I've just worked on uh-huh. stuff enough. Um, but it's also this kind of thing of, like, because what happens when you're streaming is that it's just getting compressed more uh-huh. than it has to be compressed to be a movie. Yeah. Um, and this is also particularly notable with Criterion because Criterion is not going to do much disc compression. Mm-hmm. Whereas other people might also compress the file a fair amount on their Blu-ray because they just, you know, it's probably it easier, easier to, print. to print and things like that. Yeah. Um, but Criterion's gonna do really good, like, they're gonna fill that disc as much as they can, basically. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it just... It looks like, gorgeous. The thing about it... There, there was a part, I think it was when we watched, um, and it was one where we, like, I think we are also recording that night, but I forget if it was The Third Man or, um, what was the, the other one that I have on Blu-ray? Uh, Pale Flower. There was one of those where it was like we had to like record and it was already kind of late and we were mm-hmm. kind of tired and you're we like, oh, let's just pull it up on Criterion. And there was a, in me, I was just like, I know it's not going to look as good. I know <laughs> that if we put in like the disc, I think we put in the disc for Third Man, but we didn't for I Pale think, Flower. Yeah, I think Pale Flower we just watched yeah. on the channel. Um, but yeah. And really, it's just like the difference between like. Six gigabytes and twenty gigabytes for a uh-huh. uh, uh, like, you know, HD movie like this. Um, you don't think you're gonna notice, but you can. Well, and the thing, I bring it up in part because like the thing, there's so many interesting color choices made in this movie because it is so naturalistic. It is so like. Well, this is just what was there, and so these are the colors, you know? Yeah. You were saying how, like, when they did the film, they had to, like, tell the people, don't do the, like, normal color correcting that you would even do. I want just the intense neon to Yeah. There. Well, so the thing about it is, um, if you've ever driven across the American Southwest, and I have a bunch because um, I grew up in Kansas City, um, my mom was married to somebody who lived in Phoenix, um, and eventually moved in with him. And so there were, I've, I've driven like <clears throat> from 
from Kansas City to Phoenix many times, and usually what we would do is we would go down through Oklahoma, across Texas, across New Mexico, into um, Phoenix, um, and everywhere you stop, everywhere you stop, fucking neon. Everything. Yeah. All the time. Everything is neon. All the time. <laughs> and we, so it gives you a lot of weird-ass color choices in this movie. There's one that I remember in particular that, like, hit me the first time I was watching this movie. It is just, like, a 30-second shot of, like, um, Walt at the at a gas station just, like, trying to figure out where the fuck am I going. I think he's, like, looking at the map or something. And I remember when I was watching it on streaming being, like, is this, like, I, I remember pausing it even being, like, is this a set? Why do they have a one set in this entire movie? And then watching it this time, I'm like, oh, that's real. That's a real-ass gas station. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I think vendors, like, when I was watching the commentary track, specifically pointed out, like, yeah, this one, like, my my cinematographer or my editor or whoever was like, we got to, like, tone down the green. He's like, ah, leave it. Yeah. <laughs> leave it that green. Who cares? Yeah, <laughs> not who cares, but like that's how it looked, and so that's how we're gonna have it on the film. Yeah. Um, it also just leaves you with like so many like you know that is really what the clouds look like. You know that just like those are the same clouds that flew over like my drives to Phoenix. You know, <laughs> yeah. Um, this drive because I've definitely done this drive before, but as a kid, where it's just a very different experience i think yeah because we many many years the family trip was to the grand canyon Mm -hmm. um and also like although by that point i think we we flew more often but like i have a brother in texas now um in uh san antonio my like great aunt who is a son is on my mom's side my grandma died when i was like one or something and so she was like Mm-hmm. My grandma on my mom's side. Um, and used to go down uh, very often to see her as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of those were flying in, but a lot of them, especially when we were younger and poorer, was just driving. Mm-hmm. Like It was easier to just like take a bunch of time off of yeah. work and for us to drive down and drive back than to afford a flight. So. Yeah. Um, but we did that a lot, but I mean... I remember some of these things like I see it and there's like a certain sense of memory, but also yeah. for a fair amount of it, I was like laying in the back seat, help, like telling my parents to put the Chrono Cross soundtrack on while I played Game Boy. So <laughs> this is just who I was back then. Um, you know, mostly just trying to like avoid the fact that I'm in a car with my, mm. my whole family. Yeah. Um, so the the bigger one that I have, but it's just a different vibe, is driving through the Appalachians to go down to see Emily when mm-hmm. she was at SCAD, um, and then driving back up. Um, and there's like if there's like a movie that's just about driving through the the Appalachian Mountains, oh my god, I would just know so much of that shit. I did it so <laughs> many times. Um, I always think this comes up sometimes in movies, and I just like it gives me intense sense of memories because. I had a really shitty car at the beginning too, and you like go up the mountains for a while. Yeah, 
And it's yeah. just, it took, it was, my car was just fucking chugging mm-hmm. going up those mountains. Mm. Uh, so hard for that. The thing ran on inertia, which is not good when you're going up mountains. Yeah. Uh, and then you get to the et- the top and then I'm going down and I just feel like, I hope my brakes don't give out. Yeah. Because you just so... fucking go down those mountains. I remember... The thing that comes up in movies all the time is, is those off ramps. Mm-hmm. The, there are like things, I think it's especially for like trucks, yeah. where if you were just run away, it's just a giant like ramp up of dirt where uh-huh. you just go up and it should like stop your momentum and then yeah. you just will get caught there. I remember, um, so usually we would drive down through Texas and Oklahoma, but sometimes my dad, um, would decide to like some years he would decide that we were going to drive like Kansas city across Kansas to um, Colorado and then down. And so you go, you're going like up the mountains in Colorado and that's like a whole thing. Um, And then the Northern part of Arizona, there's a city called Flagstaff. Um, It's kind of the only thing up there. And Flagstaff's a really beautiful town. I thought about going to college in Flagstaff. Sometimes I wish I had. Sometimes I think my life wouldn't actually have changed that much if I went there. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a be- Flagstaff's a beautiful place. Northern Arizona University is a beautiful university. Uh, I'm sure you can get a fine education there. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, I remember I was 16 one year, and I was learning to drive. And my dad had me drive down from Flagstaff to Phoenix. Boy, I did not press the gas pedal once from <laughs> Flagstaff to Phoenix. Because Flagstaff is a mountain and Phoenix is in a valley. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you can literally coast the whole damn way. <laughs> um, I'm just doing because I know... So the other thing is, uh, I very barely knew my grandpa on my mom's side, um, mm. because weird family stuff there. Um, but I know we did go down and see him like once or twice. And I, cause I think he was kind of in like Phoenix area, but I think do, we used to go through Flagstaff. Do you, do you know what part of Phoenix? Cause I, my mom's lived in Phoenix so long now that I would know just about everything. <laughs> I was a very small child. Yeah. Um, my my enduring memory of the time that we went and visited him. Well, so I have two enduring memories. Um, one was, um, I'm just like watching you type in. Ah, uh, just don't mind me. Um, one was when I was very little, and we went down there. And uh, there were peas in the spaghetti sauce, and I was a picky child. Didn't really like, honestly. The reason why I probably didn't want to eat it was because of the spaghetti sauce itself. Because my mom was like very intense about messes, and the way that I dealt with it as a child was that I just didn't eat any food that I knew would be messy. So please do not put that red sauce on those noodles. That will make a mess, and my mom will get all stressed and upset about how there's like a mess on the placemat or whatever. Mm-hmm. Please just put some butter and cheese on those noodles because mm. that's not going to make a mess. Mm. Uh, this is this is how I became a picky kid, right? Uh, and then my dad would put the butter and cheese on them. But I remember that my my grandpa was very insistent that I had to eat it, and I think the excuse I was using is that I didn't want the peas in the sauce. And he did this really long story about when he was a kid and didn't like peas and he had sauce 
spaghetti and it was the best spaghetti he ever had. And then he would find out it was because of the peas or whatever. Mm-hmm. It was probably just completely made up. Yeah. But I just remember that. This is one of my only memories of that man. And then the other memory is flying down to wherever he lived in Phoenix. But I we flew into Phoenix and then I don't know where we drove. I don't remember. Um, and that was at the end of his life and he was just like uh, it, dying and you know had liver cancer hmm. or kidney cancer or something. Um, and then he apologized that he wasn't in my life more and I just felt nothing. <laughs> it's funny i literally felt nothing it's funny you say that the you know what this movie really reminds me of and this this, what i'm saying is thematic to this movie (laughs) oh yeah yeah yeah. no i have a story that's also thematic to this movie this would have been 10 years ago this month um maybe 10 years ago last month i would have to double check but um the last time i was at the grand canyon um like i say my mom lived in phoenix um and we went up to the Grand Canyon, and on our way there, my aunt had called, and my mom's mom, my grandmother, very, very important person to me in my life. Um, I love Grandma Pete a lot. Um, I miss her literally every day. <laughs> like, I wear a blanket um, that she made for me most days. Um, and we got a call right before, we were just, we were going to just use Friday, we were going to go spend the weekend at the Grand Canyon. Um, we get there Friday evening. Oh, on our way there, um, Aunt Mary had told us that, you know, my grandmother, like, she had been ill for many years, but, like, that she was doing worse. Um, and we're like, okay, well, keep that in mind. Um, but we we're still going to do our weekend at the Grand Canyon because we didn't think it was that bad. And we... Um, the next morning, like we didn't even really get to see the canyon. I mean, we had seen it a bunch of other times before, but like the next morning, it was like, oh, Grandma Pete passed in her sleep, um, and we're doing a funeral on Monday, so we had to get from <laughs> we had to get from Phoenix to to Carrollton, Missouri, <laughs> yeah. in in one day basically. And we looked at flights; there wasn't anything that was gonna get us there on time. So we drove, <laughs> and I pulled it up on Google Maps. It's a 24-hour drive. We did not stop at a hotel. <laughs> we did not do anything like that. We drove from the Grand Canyon back to Mom's house in Phoenix to get what we needed, and we drove straight on through. We stopped at one point in Kansas City so I could buy a suit <laughs> to wear to my grandmother's funeral. <laughs> and it was, this was also, I know it was 10 years ago this month, because I uh, was, at the moment, I had lost about 100 pounds in six months because I was one week away from getting diagnosed with Crohn's disease. Yeah. I was in a great deal of pain. <laughs> and then, this is just something I was thinking about constantly while watching this movie. <laughs> I yeah. think about it, too, because we drove down. We did this whole fucking drive. Like, my parents are just trading off driving, um, and we didn't stop anywhere except to, like, eat, and like I say, to buy some clothes. We didn't, we did not fucking stop. And then, the drive back does not take three days. We took three days. (laughs) Yeah. The drive back to Phoenix, we were just like, 
man, fuck everything. <laughs> <laughs> we got to like fucking like we got to like the panhandle of Texas and we're like, fuck it, we're stopping for the night. And then we got to Albuquerque. We're like, fuck it, we're stopping for the night. <laughs> like we did not do any fucking driving. <laughs> yeah. Um I just think about that a lot. And I thought about it watching this movie. Um, yeah. Anyway, we have shall questions. We, shall we rate the stairs? There are some stairs. There are some stairs. In the the home in LA. Yes. Also, the stairs that go up to the, when he first goes into the, like, strip thing. Yes. Yes. Um, he goes up these, like, very intensely red lit stairs. I feel like my gut is, excuse me. My gut's at like a C plus because there weren't many opportunities for stairs, but you did use them when you had them and you did like as good as you could with what you had, you know, I, I'm going to argue for a B minus. Okay. Specifically because of him going into the strip club for the first time and that shot going up the stairs. Sure. Yeah. The red stairs. Okay. Um, which feels somewhat thematic too. Totally. I mean, it, it's, if they somehow one of those little rooms was just a set of stairs and she was just sitting on the stairs while they <laughs> no that would be dumb that would be dumb um, <laughs> I think I can do it yeah um we're gonna do Hamlet next time I guess yeah it's gonna be slightly weird because uh, I'm gonna be very busy yeah I'm not gonna talk about details of why but yeah. Because I don't want people who aren't friends to know. Yeah. But um, we'll watch it at some point and record. Yeah. It's it's possible that we end up missing a week. It's yeah. super busy. Who knows? Yeah. I don't I don't think that's not a guarantee. It could go either way, you know? Yeah. So. Anyway, we got questions. We're going to oh, go through these. The Hamlet we're doing, by the way, is the Michael Amarita one. I realized Ethan, we should... Ethan Hawke Hamlet. Yes. I realized that we should clarify that, because there are a lot of movies named Hamlet. <laughs> <laughs> you want to read this first question? From Joel. Having in mind that you will never see these movies because they're haunted for stairwells reasons, please explain the plot of these movies in five sentences without going to the wiki page. I don't know that I'm going to follow through on the five sentences gimmick for this. I apologize. I don't have that fortitude in me. We I don't know if to... I can make it to five sentences is really the thing. Yeah, that's the other thing. So I got 2046. You got Aquarius. Who should go first? Um, well, I'm first in the email, so I'll go first. first. Um, so 2046 is... <sighs> okay, things I know. There's a little bit of a science fiction-y bent to this movie a little bit but not really and that this is a sort of continuation of in the mood for love those are the things i know and we watch like a little bit of it so i'm yeah we watched like two scenes i feel like <laughs> we watched a few more than that but not that much um so i may have watched more too because maybe you fell asleep or something is that why we stopped watching i don't know I remember us watching it at like three in the afternoon for some reason. So, do not remember why this got so cursed, but I do remember that it was cursed. Yeah. Um. Anyway, 
So, Tony Long's character um, is... <clears throat> it's 46 years after the first movie. No, that wouldn't make sense, because the first movie takes place in the 60s. Um, well, it's some number of years after the first movie, and Tony Lung's character is still a sad and lonely guy, and he's divorced, and he sees a number of other women, and you get glimpses into their lives, but it's mostly just about him sort of navel-gazing and being sad. And then toward the very end, Maggie Chung's character from the first movie shows up and says, wow, you've become a real sad sack motherfucker. <laughs> and then the movie ends. Uh, that's my that's my guess is what happens in 2046. Um, I have not read like a full summary of Aquarius, but I have before we did it, I did look into like generally what's going on in this movie. Um, so I'm, that was a while ago, um, but I do have some grounding there. Uh, so I'm going to try to do five sentences. Okay. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get to five sentences, but I'm going to try because I think it's going to get funny when I get to like four and five. I, I think that is a funnier bit. It's just I know the setup here. We're on hour three. I know. And I'm, no, I'm not complaining. I'm just like, I don't have it in me to like fully commit to the funny bit. First sentence, uh, there's an old lady. She's, I don't think a grandma. I think she's like a great aunt or maybe an aunt uh-huh. uh, of someone else who might be a key character. She's having a birthday and they're in this apartment and the apartment building is called Aquarius. Sorry, I just realized I've been confusing Aquarius and Emma in my head. Go on. Okay. I don't know why. We did watch Emma. We watched Emma and we didn't watch Aquarius. Some reason the two movies just ran together in my brain. Yeah. Um. So that's the first sentence. There's, okay. She has a birthday party. Yeah. In this apartment complex or building or something, and the name of it is Aquarius, or it's somehow linked to the constellation Aquarius or something like that. Um. Sentence two. During the party, she is talking to people, being like, "Hey." Uh, can you help me out? Because basically the some evil company or something is trying to buy the apartments complex and like tear it down and replace it with something else. Okay. Um, sentence three. This is the one last detail that I know from this movie. Uh, she uncovers that the people have been uh, putting termites in empty apartments mm. to try and have the place become eaten by termites so that they can demolish it. Uh, at this point, I have no idea what else happens in this movie. So here is sentence four and sentence five. Okay. Um, sentence four, they they go on like a holy crusade to take on this uh, evil company. Um and it seems like they're going to succeed, but they fail in the end. Uh, sentence five, the entire thing is a uh, like vague political uh, metaphor for the changing landscape of the country. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it is and it's mostly sad, but with a, with some glimmers of hope. Yeah, that sounds about correct. <laughs> yeah. So 
Uh, Joao, tell us how good we were. At least for, I know that you've seen Aquarius. I don't know if you've seen 2046. Aiden writes a longer email. I'm just going to cut to the questions. Um, uh, <clears throat> I once saw Harry Dean Stanton described as having a face that is, quote, rewarding to look at. Um, are there any other actors you don't uh, simply find attractive but find rewarding to look at? When I read this question, my first thought was Mifune, and then my second thought was the other guy who's also uh, in a bunch of Kurosawa yeah, movies. Shimura. Shimura. Because I, I think f- both of them contain such like subtlety of motion in their face yes. that I think is really like there is a depth there that not many actors like ever can have. Yeah. And I think uh Shimura's the one who's like the most this because yeah. we we talk about the I know you haven't listened to the Paradise Kiss manga cafe episode that em and i did but we talk in there about like there isn't there might be some movies but most movies with mifune is not mifune being really hot because he is playing some sort of sleazebag character or whatever he's like so like doing the role and the role is not necessarily always that like he's an attractive man and so that is where it's this like really rewarding to watch his face the, the times when I see Mifune and I'm just like, this is the hottest fucking man who's ever existed is him off the job where he's just like punched out mm. and he's just in a state of relaxation that you can only achieve if you look that good. <laughs> 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 and those are the moments where I'm just like, oh my God, this man is so hot. <laughs> like just photos of Mifune like, you know, offset are so much more attractive than in the movies. Which is weird. But anyway. I sometimes... I I sometimes have this... uh, Less so these days, because I haven't watched any of his movies in a long time. I find Ryan Gosling to sort of tap into this sometimes. I I think of Drive a lot and just the waves that, like... Yeah, I think Winding Revan does a really good job with him. He's just fucking silent. You know? There's, like, nothing there except his face. You know? Yeah, and he's doing so much with it. Um, there, there's some quote that uh, Winding Refn did in the I that just got lodged in my memory. In the he gives some interview in the run up to um, Only God Forgives, where he's like, you know, I could just like put the camera here, put uh, Gosling over there, and like close a door, and you could still just like feel the energy radiating off of him. <laughs> you know? Yeah, like. <laughs> You could still feel him acting on the other side of a door. <laughs> um, um, Meryl Streep is one of these. Oh, totally. Um, also, I think Naomi Watts. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Um, some other smaller questions. Um, vendors scouted a lot of locations based on like oh that advertisement looks kind of fun um or whatever um any other like pieces of writing on buildings from other movies that you like um i don't have any capacity for this in my brain because instead what i remember is weird taco bells i would see at weird intersections um you know on i-70 or whatever you know like yeah i have these they're for real places, not for like movie places. <laughs> yeah. The one, this feels kind of like cheating, but like so much of Throw Away Your Books, Rally in the Streets is this idea of 
um, like part of why I think that movie works so well is when they're saying throw away the books. One of the other meanings too is of the like movie is that approach the city as an open book, like approach everything as a book that you are reading and writing in the margins and you are going to do something with approach the city that way too. approach books that way, approach movies that way. Like don't approach anything as like this immutable text approach. It as a thing that you are like scribbling on the margins and that you are like working on and thinking mm-hmm. about and doing other things with. Um, and that's like the big push of it rather than just like pure anti-intellectualism, even as it is also a movie about how you will probably learn more from like boxing than you will learn from reading books. Mm. Um, but, and so part of how this becomes literalized in the movie is that there's just tons of writing that appear yeah. all over the city. And it's like quotes from books that will be on walls and there, are, um, like, things that will be written in gigantic letters across like the street in a way where you're like, how did he do that? Cause I don't know if he fully got the rights to go out and write this on a street and then point a camera down at it while people are walking around and you're like, oh. you know? Yeah. Um, so. I remember one time driving down I 70. Um, I was just going kids to see to St. Louis to see a friend of mine. Um, and I remember keeping a Sharpie with me on that drive because I was like, you know, the last couple of times I did this drive, I was noticing all these, like, I would stop in a Dairy Queen and I would see, like, funny things written in a, um, on the bathroom stall. And I just decided, I'm going to keep a Sharpie on me and I'm going to write funny things in the bathroom stall, too. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> that all the, all the, I, I don't remember shit like this that happens in movies at all. Though, yeah. Um, um, last question here is uh so talking about the the use of like split diopters dual focus shots things like that um are there any shots that really stood out to you in paris texas um or any examples of split diopter shots in other movies that you like the one that the ones that jump out to me in paris texas um because i absolutely i don't have an eye for this sort of thing the ones that jumped out to me in paris texas um are the ones that Vendors calls out in the um, commentary track because it is in particular shots where you're getting the open road out in front of them and then you're getting like Dean Stockwell or Harry Dean Stanton in the rearview mirror, Um, you know? Um, And they in particular jump out at me because Vendors is complaining the whole time those are on screen like, the mirror itself is out of focus. If you see the frame of the mirror is out of focus, because I couldn't quite nail it. And it's, I, I notice it now because it's funny to me. Absolutely not a thing I would have ever noticed without the director pointing it out. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this is not the sort of thing that I have an, I have an eye for at yeah. all, unfortunately. I'm trying to remember, there's... There's some movie that I watched um, semi-recently, but not that recently, that, like, if I just pull up here, I think I'll find it. Um, But where, like, there's a lot of key stuff of, like, having people talking to each other, but then having them both facing the camera and on the same plane, and they, they did the split focus so that you get both people in focus, but then would also sometimes move between them and, like, put one person in focus and the other. Um, I'm just not remembering what it was. Um, <clears throat> well, I'm going to move on to our next question. If that's part, all right. I, I guess I'll say part of this is I do some, I do notice these things, but 
part of me getting back into movies again is turning off that part of my brain that's like really focusing in on it. Yeah. Because I had to like turn that on so intensely when I was in grad school and it's part of what like watching movies in such a way that I no longer was in any way like pulled into in like an emotional way because I was so intellectually thinking about how everything was composed all the time, mm-hmm. how everything was constructed, how they were shooting things and everything. Um, was really useful for writing papers, but not for enjoying movies. Right. And um, I will still sometimes notice those things. But one, I notice them more often when I rewatch stuff now. Whereas the first time I kind of just let the movie wash over me as best as I can and like try and turn that part of my brain off so that I don't hate movies anymore. Because <laughs> that's why I hated movies for a while. <laughs> Alexis wants to know. What would this film be like if it was called Paris, France instead? I said yeah. to you yeah. that I was going to try and think of something funnier for this while we were watching the movie. And then I just got really moved by the movie. Because um, <laughs> I was like, I want to just see something that feels less dismissive than the answer, which is there are a lot of movies that are, what, what if it's called Paris, France? The 400 Blows. Um, the Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Well, no, that's Cherbourg. Yes. <laughs> Shabu. <laughs> um, there are lots of movies that are... Breathless. Are breathless. <laughs> um, yeah, French New Wave. Yeah. But I guess, like, in terms of what this movie actually is, um, it it's based... The other version of this is it's still Vim Vendors. It's everything. It's just called Paris, France. And uh, it's essentially just the same movie, but it just takes place like driving around various countries in, in uh, Europe, and they just never actually even go to France. Uh, so I have never seen this film, but I have listened to the repertory screenings about it. Um, the movie you're looking for is called Three Colors Blue. Yeah. <laughs> uh, also, I mean, all three colors movies are Paris, France. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Nora has an email that I would like you to read. I don't have that good of a drunk Orson Welles, but I, I don't have it at all. Oh, the French champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence. There is a California champagne by Paul Maison, inspired by that same fresh. (laughs) It's fermented in the bottle, and like the best French champagne, it's vintage dated. I love her so much. Wow, the French champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence. There is a California champagne by Paul Maison, inspired by that same French excellence. It's fermented in the bottle and, like the best French champagne, is vintage dated. So, Paul Maison, <laughs> what are your favorite and least favorite film adaptations of other media? What's your drink of choice with a flick? Um, Two questions. Let's answer the drink of choice. Um, I love a rum and coke with a movie. I haven't had one in a little while, but that's... I just love a rum and coke. Yeah. I love, like... Oh, you know, I'm just going to have like one shot of rum in my in my rum and coke and I'm just going to like feel a little buzz or, you know, 
do a rum and coke that's like half rum if you really want to. Yeah. <laughs> um, I like the I like the versatility of the rum and coke. So I'm less this person now. I used to like make my own cocktail, like fully make my own cocktails, mm-hmm. uh, not just like mix them up, but like you know do mixology. I'm gonna like design cocktails. Um, I've done multiple cocktails based off of Idle Thumbs episodes. Um, every once in a while, the Friends of the Table Discord remembers the two cocktails that I did for a partisan, and those tweets start getting retweeted a bunch again, because um, there's like two that show up in there. Well, there's one that shows up and gets mentioned and I did, and then they kind of talk about a cocktail on like um icebreaker prime and so i made one called icebreaker line but so i do this sometimes and there was such a period where like i used to just be like creating my own cocktails giving them to emily having her give like notes like you know designing most of them i've forgotten this point i'm sure if i go find my instagram i can find a bunch of the old recipes right um the way that this now manifests is that i don't go to these lengths anymore but i do still sometimes I will go into something, and if I want, like, a drink, I want to, like, think about something that would pair with it. Uh-huh. If I'm watching a Yakuza film, I'm probably going to get, like, Karen Ichiban, and I'm going to get it as cold as fucking possible. And I'm going to little get a little tiny glass, like, it's not going to fit the full beer. And you just pour some of it and drink, and you pour more into it, because mm. it's just kind of... They always have these like little glasses because you're just pouring from the bottle to like everyone at the table. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna do that because that's just gonna get me in the vibe for the Yakuza movie. Yeah, you know. Um, when we watched this, I drank uh, a beer. There's probably some more like real Texan beers that we can do, but I felt like it was gonna be a little bit artier. So what I had is I put us in. We had put in bottles of Oberon, which is like a kind of sunny slightly uh, yeah. hoppy I beer, like but it's like a fairly basic wheat beer. Um, but also, Oberon, God of the Sun. There's like this connotation of sun. Paris, Texas. Yeah. I was intentionally thinking when I was like put in Oberon. I was, I was not. About this movie. Because I just do that. This is a thing if people listen to Ghost Divers. Um, we do drink checks and often I'm like, yeah, I made this like cocktail that uses wine because we're watching Utena and wine feels like it fits utena and i've added some floral things because utena is just full of like roses and stuff this is just who i am i just think about the drink that's gonna pair with the movie um and so i don't like i feel like the biggest one is just i have my two go-to cocktails of i just want to make myself a cocktail and it's uh negroni which is if it's the summer months if it's warm out i drink a negroni which, uh, if people are unfamiliar, it's uh, sweet vermouth. Um, it's just equal parts. Sweet vermouth, Campari, and gin. And then the other final important part is like lime mm. uh, rind that you like put around the edge. So you get a little bit of lime flavor in there. Um, and then if it's cold winter months, I do a boulevardier, which is basically a Negroni, except instead of one part gin, you do one and a half parts bourbon. Mm. And that's just like, I guess, my go-to cocktails in general. If I just want a cocktail and I didn't want to have to think about it. And also, I feel like both of them compare with a lot of movies decently because they're just classics. Yeah. Favorite and least favorite adaptations? I have an answer. If you don't. I don't right now, so... Uh, 
favorite adaptation of other media, the first three Spider-Man movies, uh, the Sam Raimi ones, just perfectly understand everything that I like about Spider-Man. Just yeah. perfectly capture the things that I love about Spider-Man and, um, you know, least favorite adaptations. Every Spider-Man movie after that, except for Into the Spider-Verse, which is like a, a very good movie that is like a different type of Spider-Man story than what I usually go to. But, you know, that, I'm not complaining about Into the Spider-Verse. That's a great movie. You know, um, literally everything since about 2007, the Spider-Man franchise has just been in a tailspin. <laughs> yeah. Um, the comics, the, the, the movies, everything is just sort of lost sight of what makes that a good and interesting character. <laughs> um, I, I have mine. Yeah. At first I was like, oh, there's just so many to go to, but I, I know my two. Uh-huh. Um, the, my favorite adaptation is Angels of the Universe, which is adapted from a novel. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what I love about it is that the novel is different than the movie, and but in ways where like the movie is doing things that is capturing this like weird because the novel's like very stream of consciousness. It's all narrated by the main character after he died. Um, things jump around through time in this like very effortless way that you can do in a literary prose. Um, but all the events discussed are fairly grounded. The the magical realism comes mm. into this being narrated by him after he's died and the way that it was moving through time and it's juxtaposing things in that way. Um, the movie then adapts this through these various like images that break with reality, but that also break in with realities in ways that are like not always just like, oh, something weird or surreal is happening, but also there's like some reflection of what's going on with him. It's just a phenomenal film. We will go listen to our episode about it. I love it a lot. I love it too. Um, and my least favorite is the Hollywood Ghost in the Shell movie. Fuck that movie. <laughs> it's so bad. Sorry, I, just while we've been talking, I just noticed that Molly is watching Mulholland Drive right now. Um, oh yeah, for your podcast. Uh, she's assuming. Yeah, yeah. Um, she's enjoying it, which I am overjoyed by. <clears throat> yeah. Um, Molly and Pris having the same reaction that I did to when she opens the purse, which is, yo. <laughs> <laughs> I I think I've told you this. The fir- the first time I watched Mulholland Drive, I didn't like it. And then it like got really stuck in my brain, and I watched it I again. I think we like, talked about this on the podcast. I'm pretty yeah. sure we did. I got stuck in my brain, and I watched it again a week later. I'm like, what am I talking about? That movie's genius. Um, yeah. But even that first time, I didn't. I the the reason I watched it that second time was that the first time she opens that purse and it becomes a different movie, you know. And I was just like, oh shit. <laughs> Are we done um, here? We're done here. I'm tired. Uh, it's just after midnight. We've been recording for three hours and 20 minutes. I work at 8.30 tomorrow morning. It's fine. I gotta drive you home. Oh, boo fucking who? <laughs> no, I, you you have work Also, you, I'm not complaining that I have to drive you home. I'm like, we I need just, to stop recording so I can drive you home. I drove here. 
Oh, you did drive here. I did drive here. That's right. I'm so used to having you drive here. Yeah. You walk here all the time. I'm probably... <laughs> I'm gonna end up needing you to drive me up because there's no way I'm getting parking on my street. Your car just gonna be parked here. Let's stop recording. <laughs> Let's not just talk about logistics. It's funny to to draw out this episode even more. I know. I understand. Um, but also Okokoro is real. Okokoro is real. Just 
the count Bella Lugos is dead Thank <laughs> you.